Blank check with Griffin and David. Blank check with Griffin and David. Don't know what to say or to expect. All you need to know is that the name of the show is Blank Check. Look, I came here tonight because when you realize you want to spend the rest of your podcast with somebody, you you want the rest of your podcast to start as soon as possible. You know, he's not that Jewish, even I, though he's still very Jewish. You know what I, I mean? There's my a voice. Fine, I can't I know, do it. I know. I know. I but was it, veering a little too much into Mike Wazowski. Yes. And, and when you watch Monsters, Inc., it's easy to sometimes think, oh, Billy Crystal's doing himself. But then you watch like video footage of him doing the the vocal he's, performance. He's, he's bringing it up. You realize Mike Wazowski is Billy Crystal with eighty percent more Borscht Belt. Right, right, right. He's like, ah, come on, Sully. You know, right. I can't even do it. I can't even do it. I picked that line because uh, the quotes page for when Harry Met Sally is roughly eighty pages long. It comprises <laughs> almost the entire script, and most of it is the back and forth ratatat dialogue. And I couldn't find another good quote that didn't involve you having to say six separate lines to lead into it. Yeah, she's she likes, you know, she spreads everything out evenly. It's, it's not the back a, and forth. Yeah. Uh, can I say something controversial just right off the bat? I might get canceled, but I just want to say this. Yeah, go ahead. This script is pretty good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this, movie, this movie is a pretty good script. It's almost like it's sort of been endlessly copied basically all the way until the present day. Yeah, like emulated but never replicated. Right. 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 Oh, Griffin, you and I were also saying last night, rewatching it, that we had the same strange sensation that even though we hadn't seen the movie in years, in your case, you said maybe 20 years. I think it was 20 years. You felt yeah. like you were anticipating every line before it was delivered. Absolutely. And the more I watched, there were certain scenes where I would not have any memory of them, but then there are other scenes where I would remember every single detail. And then you know what the line's going to be, but then they say it and you're like, ah, yeah, that's still pretty good. Gets you. <laughs> still gets you. I was surprised that particularly the opening stretch, the like drive mm. back from college, whatever that is, like 10 minutes, 12 minutes. Sure. All of that was just burned into my brain. And, and you were saying Dana, like part of it is it's such an endless cable movie I probably watch parts of it over and over again. I've seen it in circulation, but I also just, I think I've only watched it one time all the way through. And it was when I was very young. How come you've seen it so little if you, if you like the movie so much, why did it not become a go back to movie? I don't know. It's very bizarre. I, there's certain movies like that. Like even, um, uh, silence of the lambs, which we covered on this podcast, uh, earlier this year was like, I saw it one time when I was in high school, was completely blown away with it, and never watched it again. But that Until, one is, is taxing and demanding and scary. Totally. I can see why you would resist it, whereas this movie goes down so easy. I mean, my history with it, honestly, is that I sort of resisted it when it first came out. Well, you guys sure. were fetuses when it first came out, if yes. that. But <laughs> I, I was just a young enough adult to be a snob about things that were too popular, right? Yes, and right. what I thought about it at the time were what some of the critics who I now see as the most wrong thought about it at the time. Like yeah. Karen James at, for the New York Times, I think, wrote about it at the time that it was kind of ersatz Woody Allen, basically. Yes, and I think sure. that was how it struck me, too. And you have to remember where Woody Allen was at in the late yes. 80s, right? Like hitting this great career high. That was the yeah. year Crimes and Misdemeanors came out. And it was right. shortly after Hannah and her sisters. Hannah and her sisters, right. And right. so to me, it sort of seemed like, eh, this is some watered down Woody Allen, but it's likable. That was the thing I think I would have said at the time was like, sure. fine, the performances are great. It's full of funny lines. It's kind of irresistible, but ultimately it's kind of hollow trash. That's what I would have said as a snobby 22 year old right. or you something. W- you would have said likable backhandedly. 
Right. Yeah, I think that right. was part of the hit on it at the time. It's like, well, yeah, like, where's the edge here? Like, it's cute, I, yeah. it's sweet. Yeah. But then when you watch a few decades of rom-coms and see how hard it is to do something yes. that is cute mm-hmm. and sweet, totally. but also has heart and has chemistry between the leads, right? I mean, yeah. you start to realize this movie is a small miracle. Right, and and the same thing we found going through reviews for Sleepless in Seattle at the time, where everyone's kind of backhanded about it, and they're like, yeah, it works, it's really effective. You can like hear the critics rolling their eyes, but it's so undeniable, it's held up as a high watermark, everyone tries to replicate it, and in both of these cases, she got the Oscar nomination for the screenplay. Like, Can despite- I say, though, this, this movie has something going for it that Sleepless does not have at all. Sorry to talk over you, Griffin. Um, no, no. That, that, that's the, usually the my move. Are, <laughs> the leads are together the whole time. I mean, Sleepless has that narrative yes. block, right? And of course, that's where the romantic tension comes from. That yes. They're in a different place. But it means that you don't get a lot of snappy banter between Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. They're snappily bantering with their friends and then they finally come together at the end. Here, you have so much time for that crackle to happen. Well, Sleepless is extremely high concept. And this movie is yeah. insanely low concept. Like this movie is literally just like, what if two people were kind of like friends and they kind of argue about it and like, you know, eventually they hook up. Like there's just no, um, you know, sleepless is all like these, these convoluted, like, yeah. Oh, high, high wire plotting. And, and this, this is but, the opposite. But sleepless also feels like the five obstructions, like sleepless right, feels right. like a dare where it's like, you want to make a rom-com, you have to make a rom-com where they don't talk until the last 90 seconds. Like, see if you can make tension from that, which is part of what's impressive about it. But yes, watching this, it is so satisfying to just watch a movie that is like 60% two-hander. Like 60% of this movie is just the two of them in scenes. And then there's the other two-hander of Bruno Kirby and Carrie Fisher, which could have, they could have their own series of movies. And I would having, be thrilled. Oh my God. Having Carrie Fisher and Bruno Kirby as your backup, just I would watch clean up. when Marie met Jess or whatever, like <laughs> so if they wanted to just do that. I'd watch it. Well, I guess they can't do both of them are not with us anymore. Right. Bruno Kirby also passed away. Yeah. I'd but watch look, a prequel yeah. about when he buys the wagon wheel coffee. Table. Oh. <laughs> I got a thing to say about the Wagon Wheel Coffee Table in a second. But but our listener listener at home might be going, wait a second, I'm confused. I know this is the start of a new miniseries. Are we launching into Rob Reiner? Are we about to go through many months of Reiner? And why are they starting four movies in? The answer is no. This is a miniseries on the films of Nora Ephron. It's called You've Got Podcast. And we're doing something a little off tradition here. We're starting with a film made by a different filmmaker that Nora Ephron only wrote because it feels so important to the development of everything she does as a director, more so than the other films she did as a writer before this point. Um, and then we're going straight into Nora. So we're sort of doing a bonus episode first rather than last. Because yeah, it's important also, for the chronology. The only other films she'd done with uh, were, were, were both Mike Nichols movies. Right. She did two Nichols. Nichols is a candidate to cover at some point. But as we've talked about many times on this podcast, aside from Rob Reiner's seven film miracle run of This is Spinal Tap, uh, uh, what's it called? Uh, the the Sure, sure Thing, thing uh, Stand By Me, Princess Bride, When Harry Met Sally, uh, a misery, a few good men. Uh, the rest of his filmography is not super worth covering. If it ended with North, it would be interesting. And even if the rest of his career were things at the level of uh, a few good, not few good men, American president, Mississippi Bernie burning, that would be interesting. The rest of the filmography is not really worth covering. And 
uh, I would feel weird just arbitrarily going, we're only doing the movies that exist. We're ignoring the last 15 years of his career. Right. It's kind of a weird cutoff as opposed to the cleaner demarcations we had for Spielberg and for Verhoeven. Um, yes, yeah, so we're doing a Rob Reiner movie, but this is a, certainly a Nora Ephron movie. It's as much a part of her canon as anything. And and introduce our guests, and then I want to talk about this year's Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay wow. category, which might be the most loaded category in like Oscar history, and yet the craziest thing won. I suppose I quickly, there's a way through the kind of logic we're applying here that we could end up covering a lot of those other Rob Reiner movies in other miniseries. Sure. Like if we ever did Christopher Guest, we could do Spinal Tap as a bonus. Right. If right. we, Aaron if, Sorkin if he makes be... six more movies or we did an Aaron Sorkin writer series, we could put in those two. Right. Listen, folks, it's Blank Check, a podcast about filmographies, directors who have massive success early on in their careers and are given a series of blank checks to make whatever crazy passion products they want. Sometimes those checks clear and sometimes they bounce baby. And this is a director who is in blank check mode. And this film is such a success. It's such a clear that its screenwriter then gets to have her own career as a director as well. That's what we're really looking at here. This film is a guarantor for a directing career yeah. for its screenwriter, which is Absolutely. pretty wild. Not something uh, that never happens, but something that doesn't happen super often. I mean, look how many times uh, it took for Aaron Sorkin to get to direct his own movie. Yeah, for much, sure. Much longer. But our guest today is the great from Slate and the Flashback podcast, Dana Stevens. Hello. So happy to be back. Oh, wait. And, so and the Slate Culture Gap Fest podcast. Slate I gotta, Culture Gap Fest. I, I got to yes. plug us because we just, guys, we just went bi-weekly after having been weekly for 12 years. I and saw it, that. It's, it's tough times for Slate right now. So yeah. I, I got to mention my podcast and hope that somebody and become will a come Slate to it Plus here. member, you know, and listen yeah. to all the nice podcasts. And listen to, to uh, Flashback is only for Slate Plus, correct? Yep. It's only behind the paywall, but we make it worth your while. That one is me and Kay Austin Collins from Vanity Fair, who I the think master, you guys have had, master, right? Several master, times. He was just on for the second time. Yeah. What did he do? He did uh, Witches of Eastwick. Nice. Oh, I got to hear yeah. that. Yeah. Um, uh, but definitely sign up for Slate Plus. Uh, things are bad right now. Things are generally really bad right now. What a nice time to watch When Harry Met Sally. But Guys, guys, listen to this. Okay, there were five nominees okay. for Best Original Screenplay, 1989, okay. at the Oscars. Yeah. Woody Allen's Crimes and Misdemeanors, wow. which might be his, I think, I would argue is maybe his best screenplay. It's up there. It's very, yes, that's a, that's a very solid argument. Nora Ephron, When Harry Met Sally. Pretty Steven good. Soderbergh for Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Wow. Spike Lee for Do the Right Thing, which <laughs> is, I would say, oh the inarguable winner. Shit. You yes. kind of can't argue with that. Like, that's just an, an incredible uh, yeah. piece of writing. And then the winner was Dead Poets Society. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> Tom Schulman's Dead Poets Society. Like, it's wow. crazy that they were presented with those options. I know Dead Poets Society was, a, you know, a big hit and, yeah. you know, whatever. But like, the, and that they, they, they went for Dead Poets Society. That is it's so a, Oscars. I mean, if you ever need to is. explain the Oscars sensibility yes. to an alien, just whip out those stats right there. <laughs> right. And then and then Driving Miss Daisy wins Best Picture. Yeah. Uh, it's so, That's so crazy. You also think like there's a correct Oscar timeline in which Spike Lee gets his screenplay win then, which probably means that Black Klansman wins picture or director. Sure. I, 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 get, I get what you mean. Right. Yeah. 
Like by that point, it was like, we're going to give it the one screenplay award because Spike finally needs to win an Oscar. If he had won screenplay 20 whatever years earlier, I think they might have given him best picture at that point. Was Do the Right Thing nominated for any category? It was nominated for screenplay and um, best supporting supporting actor actor for Danny Danny Aiello. And that's it. That's That's it. it. That's it. And once again, the winner for best picture was Driving Miss Daisy. Driving Miss Daisy, which also won the, the the Golden Globe for Best Comedy over When Harry Met Sally. And we never stopped laughing. <laughs> <laughs> Driving Miss Daisy is not that funny. I mean, have you no. seen Driving Miss Daisy in any kind of recent memory, Dana? I don't even think I saw it back then. Yeah, I mean, I've never seen it. That was the I, ultimate I was fully movie in to the be mode a snob of, about. Right? Yeah, exactly. Right. I was fully in snob mode. I didn't see Titanic until like five years ago. I mean, oh, almost yeah. all of the huge monster hits of the 90s, I snubbed because I was, sure. you know, I was like reading existentialist poetry or something. Well, but, that's, you gotta do that. But Dana, you gotta admit, Titanic fully slaps, right? That movie. Oh yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, I, I should have come to it at the time. It's like I was so much older then. I'm younger than that now. That's my relation to that movie. I'm now teenager enough to appreciate it. I had th- I had the same thing. I wouldn't. I didn't see it when it came out. When I was a teenager, I viewed it very derisively. And then years later, I watched it on cable, and I was like, "This movie sucks." Until they hit the iceberg. <laughs> the only stuff that's good is the Cameron-y showcase stuff. And it was only in the last five years that I was like, "No, this movie's like top to bottom, the best." Griffin, were you like me and just mostly looked forward to the guy hitting the propeller and then totally. spinning all the way down? Yes, that was my favorite That's moment. That's my favorite part. Right. I was like, this movie does not work for me emotionally at all. I just like the sort of showcase technical bravura stuff. But I mm-hmm. also was only watching it like full screen standard def TV. Yeah. And it, I, it was when sure. I finally when they re-released it in 3D and I went to see it from the opening moments. I was like, oh, this thing's a masterpiece. Whereas this this is a, a very pretty movie. It's shot by Barry Sonnenfeld. Um, yeah. And it has all his trademark. Like he loves the camera low to the ground. He loves big, you know, autumnal photography. Um, but this is a movie that kills on cable because you can enjoy it on the tiniest screen. Like, you know, the dialogue's always going to be good. But like this is shorts. the wildest thing for me is like, so I saw this movie, I think when I was 10 or 11, I saw it very young. Because the AFI had done their like 100 years, 100 laughs list, or as Mike Ryan calls it, funny times for funny people. Right. Of the 100 funniest movies of all time. And as a comedy nerd, I was like so obsessed with it. And Blockbuster gave out a little foldable checklist. And I compulsively wanted to see the 100 funniest movies of all time. So I started watching a lot of movies that were maybe a couple years beyond my age. Um because I felt like I had to see all of them. And a lot of them, because it was an AFI list, were not like laugh out loud, like crowd pleasers. They were movies that were kind of like, <laughs> chuckle to yourself kind of comedies. So I'd watch them and I'd be like, why was this so high rated? And Harry Met Sally was one of the ones that I watched. And I was like, I totally get this. This is totally funny. This totally works for me. It's so entertaining. And then I weirdly never watched it again in full. Had watched it the one time, probably on VHS. And then watched this on Blu-ray last night, and it looks so goddamn good. Oh, it's a good-looking movie. Because it is a movie that played so well on cable for so long, you don't realize how well shot it is. Uh, Question, is this movie set in New York City? (laughs) Ben, not only is this movie set in New York City, but you could argue it should be called When Harry Met Sally Met New York, because New York is almost like a character in this movie. 
Yeah. I kind of felt that way, too, watching it again. I kind of felt like above the title, it should say Billy Crystal, Meg Ryan, and New York. <laughs> it's it's funny considering it begins in Chicago. It's got that nice shot of the University of Chicago campus. Well, well and parts campus. of it were filmed in, in Hollywood when you look Most at the end it. at the location, right? So yes, right. they yeah. went and did some exterior shots in New York, yeah. and then they were just on sound stages, which is, which is strange to think of. But it is like it shows you the importance. And a thing that I don't think movies like this do anymore when movies like this still rarely exist is like, we have to go film in New York for like 10 days. We have to go film in New York and make it count and go to Katz's deli and walk through central park. We can fake the rest of it on sound stages, but you need enough stuff that is undeniably New York to make it feel like New York. And now this type of movie gets shot entirely in Vancouver. And they're like, yeah, this is New York. This is New York. Uh, sure. I would actually say that's less true now. I think now you can shoot it. There was that period where New York, it was tough to shoot him, but then New York became so willing to allow, you know, yeah. Uh, you know, they had all the tax breaks and all that. I still feel like people cheap out. Yeah, sure. Let's, let's talk a little bit. Let's zoom out a little bit and talk about Nora Ephron because it's an interesting career and a different one than we've covered so far in this podcast because she already had a career of some renown before she even got into movies in any capacity. Oh, certainly. I mean, do you know the Nora Ephron story, Dana? No, tell me the Nora Ephron story. I mean, I assume at this point she was a, a columnist and journalist mainly, right? She was yeah. like Sally in the yeah. movie. Yeah, right. She's the she's the um, the daughter of of um, Henry and Phoebe Ephron, who were both screenwriters, right? Mm -hmm. Playwrights both. and screenwriters and humorists. Um, and so she, you know, she grew up in that, and they were both you know, East coast folks, you know, she's a New Yorker, you know, all that. Um, she's named after the protagonist in a doll's house. I did not know that. Wow. Um, and I feel like she, you know, right. Like this sort of, it's been talked about more now cause Amazon even made a show about it, but like she worked at Newsweek when she was, um, right out of college and mm -hmm. accepted her position as like a male girl wasn't being allowed to write and was part of that famous class action suit you know, against the magazine for sexual discrimination where they were like, yeah. you know, women were literally just not allowed to write at Newsweek. Who played her on that TV Good show? Good Girls Revolt. That's what the yes. show was called. Yeah. Who played her on that TV show? Uh, who played her on that TV show? Grace Gummer. One of the, wow. one of the street children. That's um, pretty wild. Yes. Uh, and then, yeah, I feel like, right. She was like, she, she had a column at Esquire and, um, she worked, uh, I don't know, she worked, she, she married Carl Bernstein, obviously. And she had published a successful novel by this point, right? Because Heartburn was Heartburn a novel before it was a screenplay, right. Yes. right? So then that's her big transition point. I mean, I was trying to think of like who a modern day equivalent to her would be pre-film career. And it's almost someone like, like Gia Tolentino or someone, you know, it's I'm someone. Sure. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, like even more fit, but yes, yeah, totally. But I was just like, I, I'm, tr I was trying to come up with some vague analogy where it's like, here's someone who does a lot of short form work in like very high profile publications and platforms that like has a lot of renown, a lot of circulation. Then she goes on to writing her own book and then Mike Nichols buys that book, adapts it with two of the biggest movie stars and hires her to write her own screenplay. And I watched Heartburn last night for the first time ever, or yeah. yesterday afternoon,
for the first time ever. And another thing I was like sort of processing about heartburn is in real life, that story was so publicized because Nora Ephron was so well known because Carl yeah, Bernstein so was a, even more well known. Right, It was such a chattering classes piece of gossip. Right. And yeah. the affair was with like the daughter of the prime minister that like, here's yep. this like very sort of like tawdry tabloid tale about like the New York intellectual scene, you know, or I guess they were in Washington, D.C. at the time. Then she adapts it into a, you know, a lightly fictionalized novel, which becomes a bestseller. And then it gets turned into a movie with these two massive movie stars and this like major, major director. But the movie got bad reviews at the time and was seen as have, a disappointment. Yeah. Have you seen Heartburn, uh, Dana? Do you have Heartburn Yeah, not, takes? In, not in a while, but I, I kind of agree it's a little bit limp. I mean, it has a problem that some Mike Nichols movies have where everything in it is perfectly well done and perfectly yeah. agreeable. All the moving parts are in place, but it doesn't spark the way this movie sparks. No. And it also, I mean, it's a thing... We're recording this May series wildly out of order for a bunch of reasons, including the pandemic. But it's a thing that Dave and I keep on coming back to, which is like she has a caustic side, mm-hmm. Nora Ephron, and then she has this sort of souffle side. And in her humor, in her short form writing up until this point, she mostly made her success off of the caustic side. And when she moves into movies disproportionately. Her souffle films do really well and her caustic movies kind of bomb or always right. seen as high profile disappointments. She never figured out how to totally make the caustic stuff work in films, but she figured out how to do the souffle better than almost anyone. Um, and Heartburn is kind of that thing where it's like it's a little too angry. It's a little too sad. I like the movie. The other problem with it, and this is something out of their control, is that it gets so thrown off by it being Jack Nicholson. Because it was supposed to be Mandy Patinkin, and Patinkin gets fired like a week into the movie, and Jack Nicholson jumped on to save it from getting shut down. And when you have Jack Nicholson as a movie star presence, it like changes the entire chemistry of the thing. Especially combined with that caustic tone you're talking about, totally, right? Yeah. Because there's no mentioness. There's not a single right. bit of mentioness right. in that character. Part of which is the writing, and it's her ex, and she's, yes. it's a revenge piece, right? Right. But, yeah. but Jack Nicholson does not add to the to the sweetness of the souffle. No, no. no and I, someone well, like Mandy Patinkin can play like a snob who's also like a womanizing asshole, and it can well, play a little bit more like a comedic device. Whereas Jack Nicholson, it's always that thing of like Satan seducing. You. Well, but that's that's the thing about Harper is Tinkin was trying to play him sweet, and Nichols was right. like, "You don't get it. You're fired. Like that right. is not what I'm going for. This is not going to be a sweet movie." And the movie is admirably unsweet. Like you know, it certainly yes. is. But like that's why it, it's not particularly surprising that it was not a hit because right. it's it's a it's it's a tough movie to love. Like it is it is totally. pretty resistant to you uh, embracing it. But but Efron and Nichols clearly spark, and Nichols hires her to uh, do the script as, for uh, Silkwood as well. And then this is the real breakthrough moment because this is the first time that Nora Efron writes a movie that sort of establishes what the Nora Efron directed films are going to be like. Can I just throw in though that Silkwood still rocks and is an incredibly well done movie? I've never seen it. I need to see it. Silkwood is like what 
a true story. Like that's, it's a great template for like a based on a true story, you know, type movie. I would say like, it's pretty unsparing. Everyone in it is so good. Oh, and it has this completely matter of fact, lesbian love affair, right. Or domestic situation. And which at the time I remember thinking like, is this possible? Cher and Meryl Streep just live together. (laughs) You know, I mean, that just, what that wasn't happening in mainstream movies. Oh, so good in it. Oh, so good. So sexy. Yeah. I feel like I've always dismissed it for that reason. And we've covered a couple of these on the podcast recently, like Philadelphia and Lorenzo's Oil, that are movies that are easy to just sort of cite on scene and go like, is that some like Oscar Beatty thing? Like the premise is so dramatic, you know, and like heavy handed and issue driven. Is there any way that movie still holds up? But I I, I need to watch Selkwood. Um, But then this is, I was watching... Uh, a bunch of the special features on the When Harry Met Sally uh, Blu-ray that Shout Factory just put out. A, a free plug, Shout Factory very nicely just sent me a bunch of Blu-rays. They have cool. people at their label who uh, listen to this podcast and they asked me what movies I wanted. And I picked this because I knew we were going to be covering it. Um, but their new Blu-ray is incredibly good for When Harry Met Sally and has this like 45-minute talk between uh, Rob Reiner and Billy Crystal that was filmed in the last year. That's really, really good. Um, but this movie really springs out of uh, Rob Reiner's romantic frustration post Penny Marshall divorce, which yes. is a weird thing to think about. Uh, and he wanted to make a movie about trying to figure out how to date again and just sort of like elementally the relationship between men and women and all of that. Um But a lot of what he was pulling from was very autobiographical. And he very wisely said, I should get a female writer because I understand the male perspective and I'm the one directing this. I should find a female writer who can add uh, a lot of perspectives that I don't understand to this rather than me trying to tackle everything myself. Um, So I think he just reaches out to Efron and, and hires her off the strength of her previous work. Pretty much, yeah. Griffin, something about that collaborative relationship, which I'm sure you know if you just watched all these extras, they must talk about it. But I was really struck reading about this movie, how much it sprung out of a collaboration among all of these people on a personal level, right? So Billy Crystal and Rob Reiner were really old friends at the time, very good friends, right? So the character... Billy plays is based on Rob and yeah. there were a lot of interviews with Rob Reiner that Nora Ephron did to essentially lift dialogue from him. Right. Yeah. And something that really strikes me watching this. I mean, people always talk about can men write women? I think this is a great job of a woman writing male characters. Absolutely. Right? And the yes. batting cage scenes, you right. know, the, the wave at the football game, like all these ridiculous masculine rituals that she nails. And yeah. I think a lot of that comes out of her interviewing Rob Reiner at length. And right. apparently also on set, there was a huge amount of, you know, um, collaboration, for example, we'll get to it, but the orgasm at Katz's scene yes. was something that came out of, they wanted to do something about a fake orgasm. They couldn't decide how to turn it into a joke. Meg Ryan had the idea of her faking it. Yeah. Um, Rob Reiner had the idea that it would be in a public place. And Billy Crystal came up with the line, I'll have what she's having. Yes. Which classic, Rob Reiner's mom, of course, delivers. Right. The more I dug into the special features, the more every story was like that. It was like a perfect confluence of everyone adding stuff. And as Rob Reiner pointed out in his like very menschy way, he was like, look at how many directors came out of that movie. Like Billy Crystal goes on to write films and then direct films. Barry Sonnenfeld goes on to become a major director. Nora Ephron goes on to become a major director. And Meg Ryan even directs a film later. So he was like, it would have been dumb of me to not recognize and accept the collaboration of all these people on set who clearly had so much to contribute. You had all these people who were 
able to provide more than the job they were ostensibly hired to do. And like Nora Ephron is a producer in this film, in addition to being a writer. And I think that title reflects the fact that like she was on set every day. I mean, it was constantly this sort of brain trust of it. Billy Crystal told this story about how like he had heard that Reiner was starting to meet with different actors to play Harry and he hadn't been called in for a meeting yet. And he viewed it as like, look, we're obviously very good friends. They became friends when Billy Crystal did a one episode appearance on All in the Family and hit it off so much that they continued working together in everything. And Billy Crystal has his tiny role in Spinal Tap and the larger role in Princess Bride. I mean, they continue to do like little things together. But Reiner said his big fear was, I don't want to embark on that heavy of a collaboration with a guy who I consider one of my best friends because you're putting a friendship at risk. Sure. And so he sort of tried to avoid, is there a way to not hire Billy to play Harry for a while? And Billy Crystal very magnanimously said, like, he knows what I can do. We're friends. If he thinks I'm the right guy for the job, he'll hire me. And if he doesn't, then he has his reasons. And I trust him enough as a friend and respect him enough as a director that I won't question that. So he never campaigned for the part until Rob Reiner came around to him and said, you know, I'd made the calculation that I think our friendship can survive this. But he said the on top of as an actor that I thought he could do it. And the fact that he knew me so well and the part was so autobiographical that I knew he would get it. I also knew he was a writer on top of it. He would be able to add all these other things with his brain comedically on the set every day. And Nora Ephron was the same thing. Hire her as a writer, have her work on the script, but also that's getting her on set every day working in all of this. Can I just say, I love how that hesitation between these two best friends as to whether they'd make a movie recapitulates the story of when Harry met Sally. It's like (laughs) consummating their relationship. Absolutely. And the other thing they talked about is a lot of the scenes between Harry and Sally in this movie are scenes of things that happen between Rob Reiner and Billy Crystal. (laughs) Like talking on the phone at night, right? They used yes. to call each other yes. and watch TV together over the phone, which is so That's sweet. That's directly right. lifted, right? Right. right. From so they their were like, they loved each other so much as guys, <laughs> you know, as friends and as people who respect each other's creativity that they pulled, like, gave Nora Ephron, here are things that we did 10 years ago when we were both miserable, you know? So you put those things into the script, and like, everyone's calling from their experiences here in the way that, like, Harry is very much a Rob Reiner surrogate. And I think Sally is very much a Nora Ephron surrogate. And then the relationship is sort of an exploration of uh, their friendship, Crystal and like Rob Ryan. Like there's such an interesting four square yes. going on there. I will say it is also funny to think about Billy Crystal's career. He's not been in a lot of movies. He's uh, At this point, obviously, he's very famous. Saturday Night Live. He was on Soap. He's hosted award show. You know, like. It's not like like, right. It's it's Soapy plays the first gay character on network television, and it's a hit, and it's a breakout performance. So that brought it brings him a lot of attention after being a stand up and doing appearances. Then he does the one season of SNL, right? But but then he'll drop in, right? But it's that one season that's the All Star season, which I kind of wish they would try to do again at some point. Where Who the was show in the was, All-Star season? That was about was, when I wasn't watching the show much. It was the brink of cancellation and Eddie Murphy had left and Dick Ebersol said, what if instead of doing the way that SNL always works where you try to find people on the verge of breaking out, you get like six people who are already really established, but you only sign them up for one season. So I'll agree to do it. So it was right. Billy Crystal, Christopher Guest, Martin Short, 
uh, Harry Shearer, uh, Jim Belushi was already on the show at that point. Was uh, Julia Louis Dreyfus still Julia on? Julia Louis Dreyfus, Martin Short, Pamela Stevenson, Rich Hall. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah. it's a, it's a lot of like big shots, and they're all gone by the next year. But the th- next year was, is yeah. the famous Robert Downey Jr., right. Joan Cusack, where they hire like a bunch of children. Right. That's Lauren Michaels comes back and tries to get like Brat Pack people. Yeah. Right. right. But that was the year. It was the big thing of like we're going to spend more money to get Billy Crystal, Martin Short, Christopher Guest, and Harry Shearer. Like a blood all... transfusion for the show. Right. Yes. Right. Right. And these guys have been doing sketch. TV. They've been doing comedy for so long. We know they're going to hit from the first like, episode. Here's what Billy Crystal's been in in terms of movies. He's been in the Joan Rivers directed Rabbit Test back right. from the 70s. Which That's is his like first the, lead role. That's a movie it, about a man getting pregnant. Oh, yes, I remember the movie poster with great pain. Right, where she's, <laughs> she's profile, pointing at his baby bump. Profile yeah. of Billy's baby bump. Yes, exactly. It's uh, one of those he, movies where you're like, why would you call it that? Like, I, I'm sure it's explained within the film. Yeah, it's a weird, weird title. Yes. Um, and, you know, he has little roles in like this is Spinal Tap and The Princess Bride. But his only other big movies are Running Scared, which we yeah. have covered on this podcast. Which his he's buddy, really good in and weirdly hot in. He's very hot. His buddy cop, Chicago comedy with uh, Gregory Hines. Mm-hmm. And then Throw Mama from the Train, the, the DeVito movie. Wow. Yeah. Um, and Memories of Me, which he wrote as well, which I've never seen, which is like, I don't know, sort of a forgotten Billy Crystal project. I don't know. I, I, I don't know if anyone's ever seen Mr. Saturday Night pre- prequel. That's that's yes. coming out soon. You know, City Slickers is coming like people like his 90s oh, run is, is on its way. Yeah. Right. Come that's on. A, City Slickers is great. Movie. Sure. I mean, I haven't seen it in years. I'm glad they made a sequel. But that's when he becomes the main creative force behind his movies. Yes. He's top build, right? You know, but like, yeah. it's sort of funny to think about uh, Billy Crystal as movie star. Totally. And like, it's Especially romantic he's... lead, right? Which yeah. he really never was but, before and really not no. since. And But like, feel free he to weigh in, again. It never worked as well, but right. he, tried he would, again. He tried again with like, Forget Paris or, right. right? Like, I feel like there's another one I'm forgetting where he's like, an absolute well maybe it's just forget paris hmm. i think yeah. that's about it like he's romantic after- in the princess bride oh he's ve- well he's he's sure. very sexual in princess bride <laughs> um but uh dana i mean weigh in uh well i guess father's day that's the other one I wait mean, what am i weighing in on whether billy crystal is hot and when yes billy crystal <laughs> hot like because i think billy crystal is hot in this movie oh yeah definitely He's he's the funny Jewish guy. I mean, that was yes. that is and was my type. In fact, I'm now married to one. Like the short, funny <laughs> Jewish guy is hey, irresistible. Dana, humble brag. <laughs> <laughs> um, I like him with the beard in this. I know he I sort say, of that's transitions the out of the beard. But that's the through line with running scared in this. He's weirdly hot, and he's got the beard. And then once he shaves it, he does have an odd face. He is not an unhandsome man. But he has odd features and he has such weird hair. He's always had the odd hair. Uh, His hair's only gotten odder, but it's always been that shape. Yes. Um, Um, The beard beard is when it's working best, but like the charm he exudes uh, when he's singing Oklahoma, it's it's too much. But the the big dick energy he's got during the college (laughs) section of this movie. That's what I'm saying. He's coming into the car. He's with Meg Ryan, who obviously is a very beautiful actress who's like, I think at this point, better known. As like you know what she's in, like absolutely Top Gun not and absolutely Inner Space. not right it's Top Gun this is her first real leading role 
Yeah, no, that's what I'm saying. She's, I'm not saying she's better known than him. I'm saying she's better oh, known. Oh, she's not known yes. as a comedy figure at all. No, she's no. like a, a, a beautiful young actress. Yes. Um, and he's the one who's like, eh, well, all right, you know, whatever. You probably haven't even had good sex yet. Like, I'm cock of the walk over here. Right. Like, he, he's all alpha energy, and it's not what you'd expect. You'd expect <laughs> him to be the nebishy kind of funny guy. I'm right. just thinking of his delivery of the line, ride me, big Sheldon. <laughs> yes. But that's the thing. You're like, in the it, for immediately, you're like, I can't believe Billy Crystal is pulling this off. You know, like you could right. not predict that he, and I guess Rob Reiner could because he knew him well enough, but that he would have the capacity to actually play someone sort of that arrogant and that macho successfully and somewhat charmingly. And right. the weird thing is, if you looked at this poster at the time, I have to imagine it must have felt like a late period Adam Sandler movie where it's like, this guy is not sexy and somehow improbably he has a very pretty young actress fall for him. And I imagine they don't have any chemistry and the movie is totally one-sided. And then you watch this film and like they're both on the exact same level. Yes, how to define like they have great chemistry because they do feel like they just like know each other really well. Like yeah. and it's partly the structure of the movie that has the two false starts to their relationship before yeah. they're actually friends. So it kind of like they kind of get being young idiots out of the way. But like m- most of the scenes which are just like them talking, like the scene where they argue in on the stoop yeah. and then immediately mm-hmm. kind of diffuse it and hug. Like you can't fake that. That's a, that's that's it's a, it's very impressive friend chemistry on top of romantic chemistry. Totally, and it's interesting that then Tom Hanks is the guy who she keeps making movies with. But I I think almost you you couldn't replicate this. Like you couldn't go back no. to the well again in the way that you could with Hanks because he's a little more versatile. You can fuck with that dynamic a little more successfully. But but Dana, I, I feel like you don't like the Hanks movies. Like, well, I, you guys asked me to do Sleepless in Seattle with you. No, right? we asked or, or you no, to do you, you Got, got Mail. mail. You got and mail. we switched you onto this because I and know I you don't I like you this mail. one. Well, I mean, right. I just I don't want to do a movie that I have to sort of bag on its basic premise with you guys. That seems un, sure. un, ungenerous spirited. You can find other people who love right, You've Got right, Mail. Right. Yeah. And there's something very basic just about the I love my corporate raider sort of premise <laughs> of You've Got <laughs> Mail. I mean, it's very 90s. It's, it's, it is of its time. Yes. But of course, I mean, Tom Hanks, I think at the time people would sort of say that Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan were, you know, he was he was the male Meg Ryan and vice versa. They were America's sweethearts, yes. And so they more have that classic Hollywood match. And of course, what Mm -hmm. makes When Harry Met Sally work so well is that they don't have that classic match. Right. You know, there are these oddballs that don't seem like they would belong together, and yet they do. And you have to attribute so much of that to Nora's writing as well. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, talking about why they work so well together in our sleepless episode which we've already recorded david you talk about the weird sort of sing-songy quality to how meg ryan delivers yes. dialogue she that gets she, that's exactly what i was about to talk about yes there's some weird melody that she finds and i think she finds it particularly well with Nora efron but it's it's sort of her very nature especially with comedy and then billy crystal is such a sort of musical actor in that he's so timed to kind of classic Borscht Belt rhythms. Yeah, he's such a vaudevillian. Like, That's what I was going to say. Right. He's this neo-Borscht Belt guy. Like, he was right. somehow this 20-something guy, you know, 30-something guy in the 70s and 80s who felt like Henny Youngman and somehow fade, made it feel a little modern and a little cool for a pocket there. And then Efron writes so musically. It's so much about the rhythms and the rat-a-tat. And 
uh, Rob Reiner said that was the main thing he was going for on this movie. And most of the sequences and even when he cuts and when he doesn't cut is designed around trying to capture that rhythm. I think it's why it works so well, because literally they're just two actors who figure out how to find the same tempo. You know, I think that's what the X factor in their chemistry, aside from them being good actors and probably getting along well offset, is that they both are able to find the right beat to work off of. And that makes it feel so magical because it's like you're watching, I don't know, an acapella group. I don't know. What were you going to say, David? (laughs) Oh, just yeah, just that. That she she has this take on Efron's dialogue that's sort of like she trails off in these really sort of enchanting ways and. It, it's it's exactly it's the sort of flibber to gibbet thing that that she's particularly good at, at occupying and like Sally is a little different from the sleepless in Seattle character who's a little different from the you've got male character but they 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 do all have that kind of like you know I don't know sort of genius scatterbrain thing going on and Billy's on a different clip because Billy's like a fucking jazz drum like he's just like <laughs> relentless like to the rhythm. And then watching this thing on the Blu-ray, it's like, right, Billy Crystal and Carl and, and Rob Reiner still just talk like that all the time as they were telling anecdotes about making the movie. Like everything they do, it's like this. You know, I say to the girl, what, what are you talking about? You know? Yep. The rhythm that I'm thinking of with the, the two guys talking is the, the scene of doing the wave, which I love so much, oh, never fails yeah. to charm me. And the way they do the wave right as he's about to sit down and say the line, you telling me that Mr. Zero knew a week before you knew? And the way <sighs> Crystal says, Mr. Zero knew. It's so good. Mr. Zero. Don't fuck with Mr. Zero. Wouldn't you say that some of it feels very sketch comedy adjacent? Okay, so this is what I was going to say. That wave sequence. That feels like a sketch. That is a rejected SNL sketch that Billy Crystal wrote. (laughs) They had the dialogue of that scene and it was boring because it was just like, what do you do? You put this in a diner? Like it's the two guys talking about it. It needs to be the introduction of those. They're dynamic, but it felt like there wasn't anything active happening. Right. And Billy Crystal came to Rob Reiner and was like, I, I had this sketch I wanted to do that was a guy goes to a ball game with his therapist. And every time he has a breakthrough, the wave <laughs> right. comes around. Right, 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 right. <laughs> That's a great premise. They just mapped it on. They took the dialogue that was already there and they just mapped it on there. But that's another example of like that scene is based around rhythm so much. You know, it's Mm -hmm. so musical. Even like another thing in sketch comedy writing, you end a scene with a button. Yes. All the scenes just have a button, like an outline that's just perfect. Bruno Kirby having the walking out with the wagon wheel like thing. There's always Uh, like that. right? (laughs) Like it's like, great. And we're out and the audience is going to laugh. Right. Yeah. But that's like that's like child of Carl Reiner shit. You know, it's like my dad told me you always leave him on a laugh. (laughs) It reminds me, too, of it also sets the scene. It establishes the like many elements of New York. Another thing I like is when he's telling his friend like, oh, you know, that's why it didn't work out with me and Sally. That's why it was awkward. At one point, they're on a jog in Central Park, and then the next time they're still continuing the conversation. It's like downpouring in like Midtown. Yeah, something this movie does really well is that rom-com thing of montaging a conversation or an emotional state over various moments, right? And there's Mm -hmm. the classic to the point of being now boring and cliched 
montage near the right. end, right? In the last quarter <sighs> of a rom-com where the two people are separated and you follow them each doing their separate thing and there's music yeah. on the soundtrack or something. But in this movie, it's done in such an original way. And I believe it's that there's answering machine messages, right? Isn't yes. it that you're seeing them doing mm-hmm. their separate things while he's leaving the fruitless but ever more yeah. funny answering machine messages? And to, going back to your your uh, observation about low concept, David, what's mm-hmm. so great about that is that there's not some elaborate obstacle thrown in their way, right? Yeah. I mean, there's not uh, there's not another person that one of them is in love with. It's not like yes. one of them is overseas hiding some secret <sighs> family or something. It's just like they had a fight, you know, like yeah, people I know. do. It's amazing how many rom-coms like feel like they have to have what you're talking about, where it's like, yes, oh, the boyfriend is they is going to come back or like Ange says, like, the, you know, he's he's always pretended to be. A, you know, flight attendant, but actually he's a butcher. Like, I don't know. Like, yeah, there's yeah. like, yeah. there's some like end of the second act reveal. And then she's going to be like, I just, it's not even that you're a butcher. It's that you lied to me. Like, you know, <laughs> right. there has to be that scene. And then they're not, you know, six months later. Whereas this feels so natural. They like, they only care about each other like for real when they are starting to, um, you know, when they're single and they're miserable and they're Mm -hmm. uh, a little less attached when they're not anytime that they're not, which is, you know, that's an honest depiction of like that kind of a friendship. Like, especially if you're going to talk about male, female friendships. Well, that's the thing. Reiner kept on talking about like the thing he wanted to do. His entire idea for this movie is I want to just make a movie. The concept is make a movie about, the dynamic between men and women, you know, mm-hmm. sure. um, you know, a, a very heteronormative perception of relationships and obviously specific to a certain culture. Oh, yeah. I mean, you can never do this that. now. Like, cause right. the big hook here is like, can a man and woman be friends? Oh my right. God. And now it would be like, let's stop talking about men and women in general. So right. like, you know, but you know, whatever it's, but it's, the, it's but the way he puts it is that like the thing he was really trying to latch onto is that a man and a woman in a relationship it's about a man coming to understand how a woman thinks and a woman coming to understand how a man thinks. The relationships sure. that work, they over time gain some sort of understanding of how the other works. And mm-hmm. if you end up being more charmed by it than annoyed by it, that's a relationship that potentially has a future. And the thing that's so great about this movie is, as you said, David, the only conflict in it is them getting in the way, right? It's yeah. the thing that is the right. hardest to pull off, but the most satisfying of the only conflict is internal. Nothing. There are no outside conflicts interrupting. It is just these two people getting in the way of their own happiness. And it's hard to do that in a way where it doesn't feel manipulative or the characters become too self-destructive. But it is one of those things where like in the opening of the movie, they completely identify each other. Like they completely identify what is annoying about the other one. And they are correct. And those attributes carry through till the end of the movie the only thing that changes is they come to have affection for those things and they also figure out how to work in a way to complement those things. And they figure out what they want in from them totally. their own lives, you know. Totally. But it but it's pretty wild that that's all the movie is doing. And another thing that blew my fucking mind is that this movie is 95 minutes long. Maybe. I think about it as being long for a rom-com because it spans so much time. Then in my mind's eye, I'm like, that thing's probably like an Apatow length, right? It's probably like 2.5, 2.10. And then you watch it and it's just like, no, there's like no fat. It is so lean. It is so economic. They sleep together like an hour in. You know, they get to present day like half an hour in. 
it ends at 90 minutes. Yeah. And then there are five minutes of credits with Harry Connick Jr. Yeah. Just Her- charming our pants off. Griffin, that's exactly what I texted David on oh, yeah. Wednesday. I said, first, is this the best movie we've ever covered? And then what? I was just like, there's no fat. It's so lean. Yeah. And every scene is just tight. You know what it's like? It's it's like a lean cut of deli meat at Katz's. <laughs> <laughs> but can, I, can I float a big conceptual question before we yes. get into some smaller nitty gritty things? This was probably have been another thing that annoyed 22 year old me when I saw it about this movie. And it goes mm. to what you were just talking about, Griffin, about its, its whole premise of can a man and woman be friends? I think that I didn't like that they ended up together. And of course, I watched right. it last night and I'm weeping in the bathtub at how perfectly totally. happy I am that they're kissing at the New Year's party. But- both Nora Ephron and Rob Reiner thought that they should not end up together, which I was shocked to read. It was like a yeah. mutual agreement that this movie should not affirm that men and women have to have a sexual relationship and they right. should end up as platonic friends. And I couldn't quite figure out why they didn't accept that it was just simply studio demands and, you know, we need a happy ending. But what would this movie have been like if they had not ended up together? I think their hope was, oh, can we make a movie that ends like Annie Hall, you know, or like broadcast news where it's more about the period that these two people spent together and less about it being destined for each other. But I think it's a weird case where, like, I fundamentally agree with you the entire time I, I was too. sitting right. there. And they I don't was need like, to end up together. And I was like, I should be pissed off that this movie ends up agreeing with his most arrogant thesis that right. a man and a woman can't be friends because I fundamentally disagree with that. Right. And the, and the premise is presented as sexist during the car ride from Chicago, right? It's, it's the mm-hmm. thing he says when he is the biggest asshole, which, like, which again, I wouldn't say, be proven correct. As Dana said, that is the Nora Ephron magic. She can actually write him very unsympathetically, which I right. feel like a lot of writers wouldn't. dare have him be such a he is a pain in the ass in the Chicago like you know in the and he's not and Billy as an actor to his credit because I feel like Billy Crystal is so usually defined by wanting everyone to love him spitting out the grapes but but I'm saying Billy Crystal in general is please love me you know the fact that he was like I'll spend the first 10 minutes of this movie being wildly unpleasant right is something I didn't think he had in him but I think this is just one of those like force majeure cases where you look at the footage and you're like, audiences are going to hate it if they don't end up together. Fundamentally, yeah. you want to see them end up together, even if it proves him right. I wonder if it's also just because you never really see anyone else that matches their rapport. Like yeah. if there were like partners for either of them, like maybe you would be happier with it. But <laughs> it's so true. All the partners you do see them with, she only has kind of generic Ken doll right, guys. Right? Right. Right. Yeah. And all of his other women we see him on dates with just seem like complete empty headed bimbos. Right? I, I think that's a great point, Ange, is like it. This movie is 90 percent those four main actors. You so mm-hmm. rarely yeah. see anyone else. And if you do, they are of so little consequence and they tend to be kind of stupid and put in only for a quick gag. You know, Mm -hmm. Uh, so everyone else is so kind of unpleasant or boring or dumb or whatever in the movie. Even when you see Helen at the sharper image, you think that was it. That's what you're pining for. Right. And what's his name? Jim Meg Ryan's previous Ira. Right, like all of those. Iris, uh, Iris, new guy. But is is Jim the Meg Ryan's previous boyfriend? Joe, 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 Joe. Right. I I, and I know that because of the way she says it on the phone when he says who got married and she goes Joe. Yes. (laughs) But that, yes, I think that's part of why, because uh, but as she says, like she didn't want to be with Joe. Just why right, didn't Joe right. want to be the with her? It's offensive. Totally. Right. 
And then the only other people in the movie who are as charming as our leads are Carrie Fisher and Bruno Kirby, who obviously should be together. So you come away right. from it feeling like by the very structure of the movie, well, they need to end up together because there's no one else in the world who is as charming as these two leads. You know, <laughs> the other thing I'd say is like, you know, by the time they get together, they're in their 30s. They've yeah. had a few relationships. They know they like each other. It's like, yeah, get together. Like, I feel like that's why so many, not to be a cynic. I know this yeah. is a, a rom-com that people worship at the feet of, but like, you know, people end up just sort of being like, well, all right, sure. I guess I'll get married. Like, you know, I'm in my thirties now. As a friend I, of mine once said at weddings, you should say not I do, but you'll do. <laughs> is your friend Billy Crystal? That sounds like. And, and Julia Roberts said to Lyle Lovett, not I'll do, you'll do. <laughs> Anyway, our nominees this year are Bugsy. <laughs> um, Bugsy, Bugsy. No, I was going to say, I think the other X factor there is Rob Reiner is still very bitter post-divorce. This movie comes out of a similar depression to Harry of, I don't think I'll ever fall in love again, playing the field, having meaningless affairs, relationships that break his heart, what have you. And then like three or four weeks into filming on this movie, Barry Sonnenfeld sets Rob Reiner up on a date with his wife's friend who then becomes Rob Reiner's wife, who he's still married to to this day. Yes, they got, oh, they got so married sweet. in 1989. Yeah. But I think that's one of the reasons it works that they end up together, even though philosophically I tend to prefer rom-coms where the characters don't end up together because the movie starts out being directed by a far more cynical Rob Reiner and in the process of making it he is once again believing in like true love. So I think there's like an honesty to the way they get together at the end rather than a lot mm -hmm. of movies where it's like, I don't know, it has to happen. And the final monologue that Billy Crystal gives when he runs to her at the party because that wasn't in the script, because that wasn't planned, is like improvised by Billy Crystal. And that was oh, that was improvised on set. Yes. And that was the first take. You know, wow. I think he might have like, no, I'm not, I, that might've been like God, Billy sort of perfect. gave him like bullet points of what he was going to try to say. Right. But, but Rob Reiner talks about like, as he was saying each thing to her, when he says like that crinkle you get in your forehead, mm -hmm. like he was like going like, like pumping his fist going like Billy's doing it. He's nailing it. <laughs> oh my God. That's incredible. But he must've at least had as a landing point, the line when you want to spend the rest of your life with someone, you want that life to start as soon as possible. That's, you can't just come up I with think that so. on the spot. I think, I think Nora gave certain points and I think, um, Meg Ryan's response because Meg Ryan was obviously less comfortable with improv. The I hate you thing that was pre-planned out. But part of the thing was like, Billy, I want to see what you come up with. Like, just try to, like, so it has the energy of, even though Billy Crystal is better at speaking than most of us, it has the energy of the type of speech that someone makes if they're actually struggling to come up with the words, right. rather than the very written version of this that you usually get at the end of these movies. And yet, I feel like this speech is so copied and is, totally. like, so worshipped by mm -hmm. screenwriters who want to make these kind of rom-coms. Right. And, and worship by people probably in the wrong way where the, who expect right. like, oh, why can't the person I like just show up and make a speech that like, you know, explains everything that's so At great midnight. about me. <laughs> Can yeah. I just say, think of all the awkward moments that have been created by people in real life trying to do something like yeah, that. Yeah, do a, New a Year's grand party, romantic speech. And it flops. And it's just, it's just really, really awkward. The Clinking Griffin of the Newman story. Dana. <laughs> 
This is one of those movies that definitely, like, watching it, not having seen it since I was 10 or 11, I was like, oh, this is one of the movies that fucked me up. This is one of the movies, because I'm, like, a broken brain person who only understands things through movies. As a young child growing up in New York, I was like, like, this is how you do it. Totally. Like, this was, like, my fantasy was just, like, you meet a nice girl, you're friends for 10 years, and then at some point it becomes more. (laughs) You know, I'm a short Jewish guy. And eventually she comes to realize, oh, my, my Prince Charming was right next to me the whole time. Like, I could give that kind of monologue at the end. I'll, I'll storm the New Year's Eve party. Um, I totally fell for it. What points are we, do we want to hit? I feel like there's some moments that we haven't. Yeah, we just have to talk about some of the big moments. I feel, I feel like, like we also like have to talk about the couples. Yeah, yeah. Like, I want yes, to talk yeah. about the crisscross, the blind date. I would love to uh, talk about the threesome friendship among Lisa Jane Persky, Carrie Fisher, yeah. and Meg Ryan. Let's um, l- let's go through an order. As Ben said, it really is a sketch movie. And a yeah. thing I thought about is, it's movies like this. I'm not saying all movies should be like this. But movies like should. this are almost, this is the type of structure that is most conducive to good film acting. Because the whole thing that's weird about filmmaking is that it's like, what's the thing that Steven Soderbergh says? It's like pointillism under a microscope, like with a magnifying glass. And then you have to step back and hope that the whole thing makes sense because you're dealing with everything in such small pieces out of order. It's so hard to track that thing in your head. And the hardest, not the hardest, but one of the hardest things to do as an actor is continuous action when things are split up, when they're done out of order, when they might be weeks apart, when the exterior and the interior might be happening in different states, in different cities, in different countries. Like, that stuff is so hard. And there's something to the fact that this movie is, like, these kind of clean, isolated segments. Mm -hmm. You know, for the first half hour, it's like these time jumps that are longer. And then even once it moves to all being present day, you very rarely have continuous action in this movie. There's almost always a little break between scenes where your brain can fill in the gaps. It slows down. Totally. And that makes it so that these four actors in the movie can really just only worry about getting this scene perfect. You know, like you can treat each scene like a little short film rather than having to do the math of, okay, we shot the other scene when I'm walking into the restaurant so that I was doing this. And how do I match the energy of what I was doing there? And right. they spent two weeks rehearsing it. You know, those rehearsals were probably like a play. And then the way they shoot the movie, you can kind of isolate it. Where like each day or every two days is like one little piece like this. But yet it doesn't feel like one of those SNL sketch movies no. that has no narrative right. coherence. It's not a Night at the Roxbury or whatever. Like, no, because know. the thematic tie between all those sketches is their relationship. And there is an arc to it. So it does feel organic and not piecemeal. Right. Um, I think there's a natural build between both of them where you can see parts where Sally's leaning toward like she kind of has a crush on him a little bit. And then he'll say something about just being friends or she does something extremely charming. And you just like watch Billy Crystal like fall in love a little bit like the uh, is it the Museum of Natural History? Yeah. uh, No, it's at the Met. They're at the the Met. Met. The yeah, Met, uh, that, that the, his the face, the paprikash might be like my favorite. Uh, one more thing we I want to mention is we got to talk about Harry Connick Jr. And just in general, yeah. you know, the, the not just him, but the soundtrack and the presence Piano of old music. jazz and stuff like that. It's so good. But again, Ursat's Woody Allen. All right, we'll talk about it. No, no, yeah. I want to talk about that because I do feel like 
you do get the ersatz diet Woody Allen thing, but then I watch this and I'm like, even putting aside personal life, this just ages better than Woody. That's what I want to talk about. Like, I mean, I want to revisit my, you know, snobby 80s self who was sort of saying like, ah, but Woody Allen is the true artist. And like, look what's happened. Look what has lasted over the years. Yeah. There's something about like, even just doing the Harry Connick and not, you know, the slight change in font style and all that sort of stuff feels so much less precious than the opening credits of any Woody Allen movie now, you know? And I don't know if it's just that he replicated himself so many times that it just feels like so hollow now, even when you watch the earlier films. But there's something about this. It feels so much more organic and earned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think a huge part of that is just like the women are much better written in their real characters, you know? I mean, with the exception of maybe Diane Keaton and Annie Hall, who obviously has a huge influence on Sally, right? Right. There's a lot of Diane Keaton elements in this performance. And there's that one outfit when they're walking through Central Park that is so Annie Hall. I was just going to look up who did the costumes for this because I think part of what annoyed me at the time is that I worshipped Diane Keaton as my personal style icon and still do. And a part of me thought just like they're just doing a fake Annie Hall. But let me see who did the costumes. Uh, It's Gloria Gresham uh, is the costume designer. No idea who that is. No, neither do I. It seems like a pretty, like worked on a lot of um, Rob Reiner movies, like a, a pretty just sort of like journeyman uh, uh, Hollywood costume designer. Okay, like, I know her name crazy. now, but yeah, okay, let's let's talk a little bit about co- um, Meg's costumes. And her hair. Oh, God, her hair. I mean, her hair is a character in itself, just like New York City. And I also think, Dana, like, there's something about her outfits in the movie. Maybe it's not the first, but this might be the perfection of the wave of rom-com heroine that is defined by her layers, you know? Well, the the Diane Keatney outfit that you're talking about, I'm assuming, is the one with the sort of wide brimmed hat. Yes. Well, she she's has derby the, hats. She wears these right, almost Chaplin der- style derby hats. Yeah. Right. And then and she's she wears got the baggy pants, pants yes. men's and shoes. She's got right. gloves. She's got a sweater. She's got a you know sports coat over it. Like, yeah, her character is almost defined by costumes in a somewhat silent movie ish way. Right. There's like a, a silhouette to Meg's outfits. Totally. That, that really sets her apart and makes her sort of old fashioned, like a screwball queen or something like that. Whereas Billy so. Crystal's outfits are very 1989, right? Very right. much of his time. And like that classic thing of like where men just stop uh, changing their fashion sense, right? You know, like this is what yeah. Billy Crystal will always look like from now. Like this is it. <laughs> he's figured it out and that's what he'll do. Right. Unless he's a tiny green monster. <laughs> right. The, who is always in the nude. Um, this it almost becomes like the new uniform for the the working woman in comedy, you know, like mm-hmm. you move past the like his girl Friday where like, you know, the woman in the office place who doesn't take any guff has to be wearing like a very, very constricting Edith Head esque ensemble. And you move to like the way you show a woman who like is all about her her career and just wants to figure out how to get her life together is like the sort of effortless but somehow meticulous uh, layering of the shirt and the sweater and the scarf and the accoutrements, you know? The sort mm-hmm. of like somehow perfect, I don't know, I just threw this on as I was leaving the house. <laughs> like that kind of look, which this movie has so down. 
Her hair also goes on a journey. I can we yes. just do a yeah. quick tour through her hair journey? So yes, as please. they're doing the drive from Chicago, she's got pharaoh wings, basically, yes. yep. right? Mm-hmm. She's got these curled, frosted wings, which makes her look younger just by virtue of wearing this really dated haircut. And then when he got sees the, her, those weird bangs. Oh yeah. Well, trying to make him have a normal hairline is just hopeless. Has, you can't the, do the it. The sideburns, yeah. the extreme sideburns. <laughs> right, yeah. right. The sideburns. Yeah, you have to make a big jump to assume that they both just graduated from college. I guess maybe it's grad school, right? Maybe they're twenty three or something maybe. at that point. I think, I don't I know think how old they're they are. just regular college because then they meet again. I think they're, they're supposed to be twenty two, twenty one, twenty two. Right, yeah. right, 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 right. Yeah, because um, then twelve years elapse afterwards. But wait, just to continue her hair journey, yeah, then he yeah. sees her in the airport, and there's that scene where she thinks he doesn't recognize her, but he does. Very and her hair is this short. very eighties. Yeah, it's like it's like the mushroom blow dried. She's mm-hmm. sort of. You know, there she's sort of working girl. She yeah, she has the bow, the big red bow. Yes. That she she kind of looks like a flight attendant. Like it's a crazy look. Yeah, that's telegraphing that she's this yuppie. The guy she's with is a yuppie. She's trying to fit into this kind of professional, you know, this upscale world that doesn't suit her free spirited style. But yeah. then, as the movie goes on and we start to get to know her and her actual Charlie Chaplin hats and her cute outfits in her real mm-hmm. self, her hair gets curlier and curlier, right? Less yeah. and yes. less style. Very much. And More if you volume. notice, the night that she calls him weeping because Joe got married and he comes over and they have sex, her hair is just like a curly mop that she's done <laughs> yeah. nothing to, yeah. right? No, as someone with very curly hair, it's very satisfying uh, to see Meg Ryan's hair like that. It's like there's so many, I think like Nicole Kidman similar, where like they had such good curls. And I think every rom-com after this, she kind of had that like straight look. So I'm, I'm glad we have like this in a little time capsule. Oh, yeah. I know. As someone with like three strands of perfectly straight hair, who's always <laughs> wanted anybody whatsoever. I can't believe anybody would blow dry a curl. It's crazy. But yeah, that's just that's such a great way for the costumer and the makeup designer to decide to show her evolution right through her mm-hmm. hair. Yeah, because yes. after Sleepless in Seattle, she she veers pretty quickly into the pixie cut, which she still rocks somewhat to this day. Yeah. And you've got mail. It's very sharp and straightened. And right. Like, for like 15 years. Right. It's either that or it's the kind of curly pixie cut. But she never really lets it grow past the ears again for a well, while. Well, and in the cut, she has the clute hairstyle, though. It goes right. past the ears then. Because she looks like. Um, and the bangs. What's yeah, very straight. Uh, Jane Fonda. Um, aesthetically, I like hairspray. And I know it's bad for the world. Oh I my think god, the bit of cool. business with the hairspray. Ben, the uh, bit of business with the hairspray yeah. in the car where she makes yeah. her point decisively by doing this big aerosol spritz. It's so funny and it's like it's that thing where like payphones in movies is the same thing. Like I just love a spray <laughs> from a bottle onto the hair to punctuate what you're saying. Yeah. Um, all right, wait. So what are some other big things we need to hit? I'm trying to think of. Um, okay, can we talk about the lunch and they and and they pull out the Rolodex? Yes, I was, I was just thinking of that when they when she's 32 and they're like, oh, you're basically what? fucked. Get your shit together. Yeah, right. God, that's insane that that was so, a thing. That's the lunch with Carrie wait. Fisher and Lisa Ann Persky. That's the sort of like, I oh, broke yeah. up with Joe. Okay, <laughs> they were showing off her Rolodex. <laughs> That rules. Are you? Is it still updated, Dana? With the with the important addresses, like the ones that really aren't going to change, they go yeah. in the Rolodex. I like yeah. I used to have a Rolodex. I'm going to get satisfying. one. You know what? I'm writing it down. I go, should go have on a eBay. They're cheap as hell. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Is that the first scene with Carrie Fisher? Yes. Yeah. I believe that's the yeah. introduction of Carrie. You're never going to leave Fisher, her. Who just like maybe one of the Mount Rushmore on-screen best friends. 
Like for yeah. someone yeah. who is so defined by being Princess Leia, obviously, right? And then secondarily, like her personal life, her lineage, the ups and downs of her like mental health and everything. I feel like she doesn't get enough credit for how good she was at being an on-screen best friend. Well, she's able to do that side of Nora Ephron that you were saying doesn't work in Heartburn, right? I mean, right. the, the really caustic, caustic lines get yeah. offloaded onto right. her. Right, right. And then in This Is My Life, Nora's first proper film, she does all the caustic stuff, but she does it as an agent, right? Or yes, a manager. She's also in that. Yeah, uh, right. sure. Yeah. And she then, works like, with Dana Eckert. Hannah and her sister, she's the best friend who kind of fucks you over. Like, she's the annoying, like, Roseburn and Bridesmaid's best friend. Like she's she pretty can, great in that. She can do any type of friend role. She was so fucking good at that. God, I just like I, Carrie Fisher but was the fucking best. Post this is when she's basically done. Like she, she stops acting. She writes postcards from the edge the next year. I mean, yeah. movie version. And then she just starts doing so much script doctoring. And yeah, right. She and pops into things like Drop Dead Fred or Soap Dish or whatever. But like, really, she's more of a writer throughout right. the 90s. But Drop and Dead Fred, like, she's doing the best friend thing again. Like she'll yeah. do a couple of those. And then, of course, uh, her best role of the late 90s, uh, Dr. Evil's therapist. Yes. In yes. Austin Powers International Man of Mystery. I think genuinely a very funny performance. She's very funny. She's always funny. She, she is an so excellent and funny. compelling screen presence. I know. So good. Um, the the paprikash scene. Uh, well, I think, I mean, the, the paprikash scene fits in with the Surrey and the Fringe on top scene in that yes. there are these sticky moments from Billy Crystal that are also, they're like acts of seduction, right? I mean, it's him totally. doing shtick and voices and things like that as his way of spreading his peacock tail and kind of showing off. And the crazy right. thing is it completely works. Like he is never hotter than when he's doing the paprikash voice in the Temple of Dendor scene. Right, right. So this, the I mean, and also the paprikash scene is his prelude to him asking her out. Like he, yes. yeah. he in the voice says like, yeah. Do you want to go see a movie? And this is a no bits podcast. It's a but, no bits podcast. But that's that's a good bit. Okay. And I appreciate <laughs> just a the dumb movie, voice. Yeah. No, but I, I don't know. I appreciate that Billy's like sense of humor. He's doing these act outs and these bits throughout. I agree with you. This is a no bits podcast, but that is a very, very good bit. I have to give some respect and comedy points. And also, I hope Paprikash Guy does not zoom bomb us with an ad read. What I was going to say. <laughs> What I was going to say is that, and this is like another example of just like Rob Reiner's instincts as a director being so weirdly on point at this point in his career. In like the constant development of it, Reiner working with Efron and generating new ideas and uh, uh, Crystal and Reiner working together and generating new ideas. They're constantly writing new stuff during production as they start to see what's working and other things they want to represent. Crystal at some point says to Reiner, you know what's like a real threshold of intimacy is when you develop a funny voice with someone. Like every couple has some funny voice that they do with each other. And it's yes. one of those things where I'm like, well, I, of course, think, of course I do that because I'm a dumb comedy person. <laughs> but I do think that's kind of true that pretty much every single couple at some point has some voice that is only funny to each other that they say certain things and that doesn't make sense to anyone on well, the and outside. You, and you won't reveal it. Like if it's ever right. seen by other people, it's sort of like Jesus. I mean, I'm sorry, <laughs> you know, like, ugh. so this is where Rob Reiner is really smart. Billy Crystal says that to him. Right. And he's like, that's a really good idea. Let's do that in the, um, the, the Met scene. We have this amazing location. That scene isn't that interesting right now. 
the the narrative weight that needs to be carried in that scene is you finally casually ask her out. But otherwise, that scene doesn't have much going on. Do the voice there. Let's prep something. We're not going to tell Meg Ryan about it. So she has no idea that he's going to do the voice and that bit in that scene. Oh, my God. That makes her performance all the more incredible, right? I mean, just her her, yes. her version of the voice, which is so different and kind of wrong, but all the right. funnier because totally. she's not getting it right. There's literally a moment when he starts doing the voice. And I think it's the first time they cut to her reaction where she looks and she goes like, oh, my God, <laughs> what? And then he says another thing and she has to respond to it directly. And that was her looking off camera to Rob Reiner being like, we're not going to keep filming, right? <laughs> like thinking she was getting pranked mid-scene and Rob Reiner saying, like, keep going. And that was the first take, too? Yes, it's one of those insane things. Like so many rom-com moments are like that, like Richard Gere snapping the box on Julia Roberts, you know, in Pretty Woman, where it's literally she's breaking character. She like is reacting honestly to something that takes her so by surprise and it ends up working as character in the movie. And then the harsh turn to asking her on the date is it's when so she kind of so has good. to get serious. It's so good. Um, but then also the sharper image sequence, right? Where yeah. where he's deflated. Is that improvised too or are they, I don't know. A little I mean, bit. And they said that came out of Rob Reiner and Billy Crystal going to sharper image a lot together. <laughs> Can we do a sharper image that. corner? <laughs> When they cut to the establishing shot outside the sharper image and that specific sharper image location, which I feel like was maybe their flagship. The Soho like, one? No, I think that's the one that was near Trump Tower, right? Or am I wrong about that? It looked like the Fifth Avenue one. Uptown? Yeah. Do you think the Soho one was more? The Soho one was bigger, certainly. I guess I just think of Sharper Image as being in Soho because that was the one that I saw the most. But so much of the movie is downtown, right? Washington yeah. Square Park and yes. the Arch play a big part. And at the end, he seems to be running across downtown, right? Yes. He see he sees the Arch and then that's what and, inspires and him to go run his to Lower her. East Side, obviously. That one looked like the Fifth Avenue one to me. But but when when that establishing shot comes up at the outside of that Sharper Image, I gasped. I just went like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, like I, I held my heart. The nostalgia for oh, that God. kind of yeah. retail store. I was like, I didn't know I missed that. And something the idea about of like, oh, we're definitely going to have brick and mortar stores for this. <laughs> we need plenty. But but also that sharper image felt like such a unique thing at the time. And I remember that feeling like an activity as a child. Mm. When my dad, we would like be running errands and we'd walk by a sharper image location. I'd be like, please, can we go in? <laughs> please. <laughs> well, because it was an interactive store. You get to try out all this shit. Right. But the concept is it's like as seen on TV merchandise, but right. it's just a little nicer. And it's stuff where you're like, does that actually work? You know, <laughs> like I would get the catalog and circle all these things. And my dad would be like, that doesn't work. It's not going to work. We're not going to buy that. We don't need that. Do we remember the massaging chair where you could put your yeah. legs into the oh. ottoman? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then you'd like pretend to get trapped and like, yeah. ah! it looks it looks Good like bit. the chair they use to capture James Bond yeah. and put the laser on him. I always played with like the sand on the display. It was sand. And then you also just went straight for like the back massagers. This might come as a surprise, but I've been kicked out of a sharper image before. <laughs> <laughs> this sharp. is a sharper image, sir. Well, another thing, another technological note about the sharper image scene is that karaoke in the U.S. seems to be a relatively new thing. They never yes. use the word, right? right. And he says, hey, right. look at this thing. It plays 
plays a background and you can sing. I mean, right, now that's so much part of concept. our lives. Of right. Yeah. Right. And of course, the callback that later on when he calls her on the answering machine, he he's bought the karaoke machine, right? Yeah. When he's yeah. leaving his message at the end. But it's one of those things where like, Every scene like mapped out in the script in terms of here's what needs to happen at this point. He needs to run into his ex-wife or he needs Mm -hmm. to finally ask her out, you know, or they need to have a conversation about the fake orgasm or whatever. It's like as a director, Rob Reiner always finds a way to make it a little more interesting than just the text of what they're talking about Mm -hmm. by putting it in a very specific location, by adding some other activity to it, like them trying out the karaoke machine or doing the wave at giant stadium or whatever it is, you know, it's like, and that's such a good rom-com thing because rom-coms are, I feel like a so behavioral, what really makes you fall for characters are the little nuances and quirks of how they behave. And that can't be too tied to the heavy lifting of the plot. But also, it's so much about environments and places. And this movie just, like, always keeps that in mind. There's always some other thing going on, you know? And doesn't that feel true of relationships in that I have memories of going out and doing activities, like, in this movie, more so than, like, sitting kind of around and just having a conversation over dinner, per Mm -hmm. se. And I feel like you have those conversations where you, like, or you think back at the end of a relationship about, like, the biggest moments and they always have some other weird X factor to them. You're like, Oh right. That happened at a costume party. We were both dressed up like that. (laughs) Or when this happened, it was like raining and we couldn't find a cab. Like there's always like something like that, that was happening simultaneously along with this conversation that will forever be burned in your mind for either a good or bad reason. Right. Well, to go back to the New York setting, Rob Reiner and Nora Ephron are so good at using the the landscape around them as yeah. part of what makes those scenes memorable, right? Yeah. Whether it's even walking back from the disastrous double date where Bruno Kirby and Carrie Fisher meet, yeah. right? And there's Ugh. that moment that the men are walking a little ahead and Carrie has this line that I'll never forget. I've been looking for a red suede pump, right? And they start window shopping yes. as an excuse to have their private conversation. Just the way that the terrain of New York works into yes. all of these behavioral shifts that totally. are happening. That, and that's a Carrie Fisher ad lib there's the red suede pump is an ad lib it's an ad lib that's a Carrie Fisher but right and speaking about someone else on the movie who like became a screenwriter and a filmmaker themselves like you had so many people who were able to generate in addition to the job that they were ostensibly supposed to be doing but but yes I mean it's just like what you were saying every scene having a button the fucking turnaround of the two separate conversations cross cut where they're both mirroring the same concerns of like, of course, I'm not offended, but don't do it too fast. She's too vulnerable. You don't want to hurt her feelings. And then just the immediate like fucking Abbott and Costello turn. (laughs) No, but it's a perfect New York City hookup joke. It is. That whole, and like, and uh, Bruno Kirby going on about Jimmy Breslin, like, you know, he's, he's like the sort of like sexy version of George Costanza, Bruno Kirby. You know what I mean? Like he has the same kind of like, you know, he's like the the kind of white ethnic guy who loves sports, like really cares about him, you know? Like, you know, like. The thing where she starts quoting his own pieces. Oh man, he's so turned on. He's just like, I wrote that. I swear to God, I wrote that. Well, of course, as a writer, that is the most romantic come on you can imagine, right? Right. Right. Your words spoke to me so much. I'm quoting them to who I think is a stranger. Oh, the kissing, David? Were you... It's losing your freaking mind. Well, I mean, and we talk about this with Sleepless in Seattle, I feel like as well, like this is, I feel like something she 
uh, picks up from this movie, like long takes. Yes. Uh, yes. Warners and then like kissing, like long take, right. You know, like right. not, not, not cutting much at all. And no. like just letting everyone sort of like, you know, own the screen whenever there's they a lot of making out. Not just not just Harry and Sally are making out, but we, we kick off the movie with Billy Crystal just having a total face mash with his yes. initial yeah, girlfriend, right? right? A lot of kissing and, uh, and we see her making out in the airport. Just everybody is constantly snogging. Yeah, her making out in the airport and Crystal just sort of waiting for them to be done so that he <laughs> so can say hi. No one would do that. You would just move on and then yeah. be like, maybe I'll just sort of like... You know, right. do a do a circuit right. and see if they're right. not kissing like in five minutes. That he both does that and then also pretends that he doesn't recognize her. Like he's mm-hmm. so clearly the move you realize he's doing later is he's waiting for her to say that she remembers him. And then when mm-hmm. an hour and a half later she doesn't, he finally breaks the ice on the plane. I disagree. I think he remembers really? her, but he can't place her. And then he remember because on the plane, he remembers her name when he pops up, which initially, oh, his timing, by the way, his timing when his head pops up behind her on so the good. airplane seat. So mm-hmm. good. Yeah. Just the I, use of that surface. And then the guy switches. He <laughs> recognizes her when she's doing the convoluted order. That's when he picks it up. Yeah. I mean, he's a, he is a genuine cad because he asks publicly, like, did we have a, right. and then he does like a did fist. You? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and it's sort of like, Jesus, Billy. But the other X factor is once he places her for the rest of the movie, he so many times directly quotes things she said in that car ride back. There's the scene where he's talking about the high maintenance, low maintenance thing with her. And he jokes about the insane order she makes at the diner with the chef mm-hmm. salad and the pie a la mode. And he remembers it almost verbatim. So there's that thing of like him being like, I don't remember. Did we did we stop? But then he yeah. remembers everything about her a la mode order. Like, no. even if it was buried deep somewhere in his subconscious, that night clearly made an impact on him. I think he liked her from the jump and then Absolutely. he wasn't mature enough. Or to be vulnerable with her. He thinks the only way to, to be with a woman is to be the alpha asshole. Thinking about that airplane scene, their energy throughout the movie, it's like the world around them doesn't exist. Yes. Yeah. And they're talking so loud and they're doing bits And it just feels very true, again, to like having this deep connection with someone where it's like you're not even aware of really the people around you necessarily. That's so true. And then it's sharper image. They Until Helen and Ira come along, they don't care that they're singing an Oklahoma song in the middle of a store. Of course, that's part of what the sharper image was all about. But you're right that they have this sense that when they're together, they're almost on a private stage that only they can see. Which is which is like very subtly powerful filmmaking from Rob Reiner that that the way he shoots and edits the movie and the way he sort of often is using pretty shallow focus so all the people in the background are not really visible uh he's he's making that feeling of when you have great chemistry with someone whether it's your best friend or the person you're going to marry uh that everyone else sort of disappears a little bit and i also feel like it feels like This movie feels so much like a play with only four actors. You could see that airplane scene playing out where they literally are just two people on two chairs in the middle of a black box theater. And they're pretending that they're talking to a flight attendant to swap seats. Well, it was done as a play, right? Wasn't it done as a play with Luke Perry? I can't remember who the woman was. Luke Perry and Alison Hannigan. And I believe that was on the London stage. So bizarre. I mean, that London had this post, This Is Our Youth, which, yeah. uh, you know, was uh, done on the West End with um, J. 
Jake Gyllenhaal and Hayden Christensen and yeah. Anna Paquin. Yeah. Um, London had this boom of like, what's a movie that we can just put some stars in like a stage version of it as quick as possible. Right. Cause like, the graduate production happens. The graduate. Yes. Right. There, there's a bunch of them. And that, yeah. that is one of the oddest ones. Luke Perry and Allison Hannigan. So weird. Like, those are people who are sort of from separate generations uh, as TV stars as well. Yeah. Like they're yes. kind of sort of 10 years apart. Uh, but it, I, I mean, I did and not I see it. I love a so Luke Perry, but I, I don't see him doing the ethnic no. New York guy thing. Absolutely no. not. Allison Hannigan would be a better <laughs> Billy than Luke Perry. <laughs> yeah, she'd be probably be pretty good Billy. <laughs> she could do it. She has the neuroses to her. Um, yeah, talk about that AFI uh, 100 funniest list. It's one of those things where like, with my little checklist, the movies that I prioritized wanting to watch after that were the movies like those AFI specials were like playing tiny little excerpts of the movies intercut with talking heads of people going like that movie changed everything. You know, either other filmmakers or actors or the people who worked on the movie. And I remember the line that just absolutely killed me where I like turned to my mom and I was like, Harry Met Sally, am I allowed to rent that movie? Am I old enough to rent that movie? Like that's going to the top of my list. It's such a Griffin joke. But after they sleep together, when she goes to the kitchen and he finds her box with all the index cards, with all her VHSs alphabetized, which I just found so funny as a joke. And his delivery of that, of like, do you alphabetize your entire VHS collection on index cards? And she's like, yeah, of course. It's such a specific feeling of like when you start to discover the first embarrassing thing about someone after you slept with them. Well, her apartment, her whole apartment is kind of crazy, totally. right? The like, stuffed penguins on her headboard. Yeah. Right. I couldn't stand the, the wicker. There's just something that's really little girly about her. Exactly. Apartment. And mm-hmm. it's like, that's such a weird thing. Like to what, to what end do you put your movies on index cards in a little box so that if someone comes over and they ask what you have to watch, they can f- file through the cards rather than look wherever your VHSs <laughs> are? Like everything about that is so strange, but it's so telling to her personality. And, it's and it goes with like, the apple pie a la mode order, right? Absolutely. And all of her, all of her OCD traits. Right. right. Absolutely. It's like he knew that about her from the moment he met her. That was forefronted. But it's this one example that like isn't a red flag, but is deeply uncool. Where if you discover that <laughs> the moment after you sleep with someone, you immediately have that like, was this a mistake? Kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. What you know? weirdos have movie collections? How dare you? Okay. Well, actually, you know what? Shut the like fuck up. Like physical movie collections? <laughs> okay. Actually, Ben, shut the yeah. fuck up. Okay, wow. But you know what? Sally would have liked a letterbox. <laughs> yes. Sally her system would, would make sense now, right? Her system, Absolutely. Her system would make sense to organize your digital media. Totally. Let's talk about, since you, since you got to that scene of the morning after, of, mm-hmm. of the night they sleep together, and then maybe we can backtrack to when they actually start kissing, but the morning after is a, a tour de force on many <sighs> levels, yeah. right? And part of it is just the framing, that really close two-shot where you see the two of them lying in postcoital bliss for her and just I don't even know want to na- name his emotional state like terror dread yes. but you one know foot out on the floor like one foot ready out the door yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and right, just the dramatic irony yeah. of that right like we see them both but they don't see each other and so we see right. the complete contrast between their emotional states because mm-hmm. of that framing it is but just if I, so good if I can correct you on one tiny thing Dana and it's the thing that I think makes it so transcendent most movies do the morning after. It's like they cut straight from them falling into bed to 
ostensibly eight hours later and the guy looking panicked like that or the woman looking freaked out Oh yeah, out but like this that. is just a few minutes later. Exactly. Right? It's just post-sex. It's still dark outside. It's still night. They later cut to the following morning and he still looks freaked out. But that first time jump is however long their, their first sex lasted. Right, you're right. And that makes it a callback to his earlier thing on the plane about, oh, we're just, men are just lying there thinking about how long we have to hold you before we can go it's home. It's so good. And then that leads into the index cards and everything. And then the next morning is like the further level of him trying to figure out how do I do damage control on this? Right. Already getting dressed. And then they make the calls to their friends at the same time. Oh, the split screen stuff is so effective and amazing. So that was all done on sound stages. They were three different stages, but they shot it all live with three separate cameras because the timing had to be so specific. So they all had earpieces in so they could hear what was happening on the other stage and they could time it. And they spent the entire day just on that one sequence filming the three cameras simultaneously, and it took 61 times to get it. Wow. But it was one of those things where, like, Reiner was like, if you're going to do it, you have to do it this way. Well, the timing is incredibly hard to get, right? Because right, right. the exposition happens a deux. Like, the exposition happens right. with both of them speaking at once and having to leave space for the other to speak while having a plausible conversation with their friend that they don't know the other person's there. It's very, like, pillow talk. It's very, like, right. rom-coms of oh, yesteryear. Yeah. Carrie and Bruno also like kind of making up excuses or like examples yeah. of what is on in the background while the other like it's just so Brian Gumble. Right. Like Billy Crystal was like, that's the most difficult scene I've ever had to do in my life. But it was like exciting how difficult it was, because so often your cues for dialogue are not lines being said to you. Like my cue I had to pick up was something that Meg Ryan sang to Carrie Fisher which I, as an actor, am not supposed to be hearing. Like, as a character, mm -hmm. that's outside of my purview, even though I have to hear it because I'm waiting for that to cue me. So you have to look like you're still in the scene and not just passively waiting because you're on camera the whole time. You're not going to cut, even though you're waiting for your moment to say your perfectly timed thing. And he was like, it was 61 takes. At take 40, they finally got a perfect one. And then when everyone hangs up the phone and Bruno Kirby and Carrie Fisher have those three final lines to each other, Bruno Kirby blew his line. Oh, oh wow. And Rob Reiner was like, I, 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 are we ever going to get it? Like, am, am I fucked? Is this too big a check I wrote for myself? And he like belligerently barrels through, does 20 more takes. The 60th take is perfect. And he's like, Jesus. let's do one more just to see now that we got a perfect one. And the 61st is terrible again. And he's like, yeah, no, push my <laughs> luck. It's done. That's it. That's it. <laughs> That's amazing. I'll never see that scene the same way again. It's incredible. It's fucking incredible. I mean, talking about uh, uh, framing Dana and you are such an authority on uh, silent film comedy. But there's that thing I think Chaplin always said that like uh, drama is a close up. Comedy is a wide shot. That is so often forgotten today, but this movie is such a great example of that. And I think Nora really learns from seeing it work so well in this movie. And Mike Nichols was really good at that, too. I mean, the fact that these were the first two directors who worked with her screenplays, I think she really borrowed from that and then develops her own really good style with oneers and long takes and all that sort of stuff. Two shots, because it is like the reason Chaplin was saying that was that. 
comedy at that time was so much about physicality, whereas drama was about the close-ups, the emotions of the actors. And comedy was about actors interacting in the space, watching the stunts and the pratfalls and all their interactions with their environments and other people and whatever. That needs to play in a wide shot uh, because you need to see everything happening in the same frame to get a sense of tension and layout and reaction and action in the same moment and all that sort of stuff. And then that tends to go by the wayside over time as comedies progressively become more and more like sitcoms where it's like shot reverse shot and people just covering it too much and editing too much. But I think Reiner realized and Efron realized that in a modern, very dialogue comedy, it's still as important to have things play out in wide shots as much as possible because the magic trick isn't you know, Keaton landing on the grill of an airplane, uh, of a, a train and dropping the log right onto the tracks at the perfect moment. The magic is seeing Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan deliver all that dialogue without a cut. You know, it's the same kind of like bravura act of performance, which immediately gets deflated if you cut to a close up. So right. you you have to cut to a close up only if it really matters, if there's a very specific reason to do it. And otherwise, it's better to do 60 takes in order to get the perfect, like, composite shot. It's it's just like a crazy, well-directed uh, I think movie. it's good to talk about this because this is seen as a fluffy movie, especially at the time. And, like, you know, there's there's good cinema here, like you're, like you're saying. Yeah. Just something we haven't mentioned at all that's a really key structuring element to this movie is the interviews with the fake old couples. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and can we talk about that? And maybe, Griffin, you know something about the genesis of that idea? Because yeah. those are those are actors, correct? It's based, correct. based in inter- actual interviews done with couples, but they hired actors to make it more you know, professional. So Al- Alan Horn, who was Rob Reiner's partner in Castle Rock, am I getting that right, is now the head of Disney pictures after being the head of Are you of talking Warner about Brothers? Andrew Scheinman? Andrew Scheinman no, is the... No, I'm, t- I'm talking about Alan Horn, so okay. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, Alan Horn is a Castle Rock guy, yes. Right, Alan Horn came out of Castle Rock. Uh, he was one of the founders of Castle Rock at this period of time, and one of the people who made so much money off of Seinfeld, but then later becomes the head of Warner Brothers and then the head of Disney uh, on the film side. Um, right, when they're in pre-production on this movie, he goes out to dinner with a whole group of people, including Alan Horn, and Alan Horn's parents who were in town. And Alan Horn's parents who are older are clearly having a hard time finding an in in the conversation. No one's talking to them. They don't know how to really interact and engage. And Rob Reiner, being such a mensch, is like, ah, I'm, I'm going to talk to Alan Horn's parents. I want to make him feel included in the conversation. Sure. So he, as small talk, asks him, how did you meet? And they tell the story that is, I think, the first story in the movie. Of I was with my third wife. I see this woman. I tell myself, this is the woman I'm going to marry. And three weeks later, we were married. We've been married for 55 years. And Rob Reiner is so blown away by that story that he's like, we need some of that in the movie. So he finds a bunch of older couples and films them telling their stories. And he's like, and they just, they weren't good on camera. You know, people who aren't actors, they talk on and on and on Mm -hmm. too much and all these details. They don't know how to tell a story. So they filmed the real people telling their real stories and then hired real actors, had them look at the footage, cut down the dialogue, you know, had Nora tighten it a little bit. But Mm -hmm. but it's essentially reenactments of the actual stories from real couples. The best one is the couple where they keep finishing each other's sentences. So good. good. It is 
It is amazing. Another like perfectly yeah. executed scene. Those two actors kill it. But it's both real stories and actors taking their cues from the way the real people told their stories. You know, there's a key to the fact that those stories were filmed with the non-actors first. So they have that as reference material. I also like the one where the woman, the like tiny old woman, just like gives her whole spiel. And then the guy... What's his line? Is that he just like he introduces himself? Yeah. Oh yeah, his his first line was "I'm Ben Small of the Coney Island Smalls." Oh yeah, <laughs> and then they go, and that was it. <laughs> I knew. Uh, but yeah, no, the, the 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 sentence finishing couple. That's the one where they're like, "He lived on 183rd Street. I lived on Fordham Road." We never met, you know, like where they yeah. keep elaborating on this. Right. Like but we, we were, never yeah. met in New York. We yeah. were in the Chicago. Ambassador Hotel in Chicago. Right, the third I floor nine- on the twelfth floor. Nine extra floors. I mean, like, again, in such a low concept movie, it is a funny bit of like slight high concept where it's like, yeah, what you're watching is just another one of those crazy stories that you never would believe. It reminds me of you two. Of you two? Griffin and Dave, you always finishing each other's sentence oh, talking thought, about some weird movie stuff. Sure. I mean, David and I are about- the modern Harry and Sally. I thought you were talking about Bono <laughs> and the Edge. <laughs> another Harry and Sally. They had a meet right. cute for sure. Yeah. The thing it makes me think of is of uh, the mockumentary style of Spinal Tap, right? Totally. Something that Reiner had already proved he was good at. These yeah. kind of moments that seem like they couldn't possibly be uh, scripted, but they somehow yes. are. And Reiner was like so good in this window of being just like this incredible kind of completely unpretentious studio filmmaker who could adapt his style pragmatically to whatever that project demanded, you know? I think that was what blew people away so much at the time, was just like, every film this guy makes is like a different genre, and he's like doing all of them well. And it's because he didn't have a super defining style other than his sense of humor, which then starts to become less relevant as he does like Misery and A Few Good Men. What he was good at was this sort of like old studio filmmaker thing of just like, and how do you make a Western? And how do you make a screwball comedy? You know, what do you do for this? And sort of just the problem solving of like, you do the couples having the stories. That's a nice way to fill in the gaps. You know, like all of that kind of stuff is just, I think the kind of things you do if you're keeping yourself open to, I need to just figure out what works best for this movie. And even just he talks about, I forget what it was, but they had a different title for the script that was bad. It's a when we, how they met, something like that. Uh, How they met. That's bad. Right. And on, on, uh, during production on set, he would say like, there's a contest. Any crew member can pitch me a new title. And if you get the right title, I'll pay you $200. You know, I thought it was a a case. It was a case of champagne that he promised whoever named the movie. It was a case of champagne. Do you know who it was that finally picked the title? I don't. That's a good question. Um, they need to come forward yeah. for their champagne. You know, you have to be very uh, lacking in ego in a way that makes sense. But so few filmmakers or directors are to just be like, I am willing to concede that anyone might have a better idea than I do. <laughs> you know, that it could come from a PA, that it could come from the catering guy. And I'll listen to that and consider it. It is a wonderful title. It's And it's wonderful because mm-hmm. it's so specific. I mean, a joke I feel like the film critics are always saying about specifically rom-com titles is how interchangeable they are. Something's they are, right? gotta give. Right. It's just right. always right. It's always some sort of a, I don't know, just sort of a vaguely familiar grouping of words that's sort of a saying. And it, it does, it's not associated at all with the specific characters or world of that the movie. The Patton Oswalt joke is feeling kind of, sort of. 
But as Rob Reiner said, the thing that def- that makes the title work is the dot, dot, dot. Because when mm-hmm. Harry Met Sally is the opening sentence of the movie, they don't get along. But right. what it's about is the dot, dot, dot. What is the long-term ripple effect of these two people meeting? It's funny because in Cats, is the sign says, where Harry met Sally. Which, it, of course, it should say that. I get, yeah. I get that you want to communicate this quickly, but very, very inaccurate. They did not meet it's wrong. It's also a wild thing that, like, and most people don't know this. You know, it's, it's a very New York-y thing to know. But Cats is famously is a restaurant where you pretty much go to the actual counter where someone is preparing the food with your ticket that that you don't have sort of waiter service traditionally in this kind of way but they understood that the button was so good that it's like have the waiter come around you know cats is more bus boys and then someone dropping off your dish but it's like you get like it feels like a commissary you get like a meal ticket and you go up to the guy at the grill and go like i want like bratwurst uh, and then they write it on your ticket. And then when you leave, you have you to pay, pay $18 for a right. sandwich. You don't, they don't let you through the turnstile until you pay. Is cats also like ever that quiet to like have a conversation Absolutely like that? Not. Or is it also no. just not quiet because of when Harry met Sally? Totally. It, no, it's, it's like they're, they're really fucking with the rules of how cats is actually functions. And yet yes. it's the most iconic cats is scene of all time. Right. But she could not have faked the orgasm in the line waiting for the ticket at cats's right. <laughs> no, I no, mean, effective. No. there's no table to slam down on. No. And, and the, the joke doesn't work unless a waiter is coming and asking, you know, so what are you having? Well, I'm looking at the other Sally's, um, Elizabeth Perkins, Susan Day, Elizabeth McGovern, Molly Ringwald. Like these were all people who were all good actresses, not the same movie. No, well, no, definitely not. I mean, like this is the beginning of a a, like big star career. Um, So it's hard to imagine anyone else in the role. I, I just cannot even imagine. I wish I could have seen this movie first run to hear the response that I'll have what she's having. Right. Because now of course it's like the freaking shower scene in psycho or whatever. It's right. just, I mean, like, of course it can still be you know funny and it can still have an impact, but right. right. I mean, it's, you learn about it in freaking grade school practically, <laughs> but that's like, and, that's like getting a bucket from the other side of the court. And it's just such <laughs> a perfect joke at the end of a scene. I mean, they talk about when they screened it, people just losing their fucking minds that you still couldn't hear the following scene after that i think also because the the orgasm is long enough that people are probably starting to shift in their seats totally like, right oh the God. tension like, builds especially up. in the 80s yeah. right and you just think there's no way they're gonna end this scene with a release valve that strong there is no <laughs> way they can actually do it well i mean what was it like seeing in theaters dana like even as someone who was a little resistant to the movie at the time People were just uh, losing their fucking minds. I don't right? remember. I mean, I remember in general that the movie went over huge, yeah. you know, and that that was a, a scene everyone loved. I, I just I can't remember specifically. I, but I think that the scene builds in. We should take a peek at what happens after, because I think you're right that there's that the laugh continues after the scene. Mm-hmm. But but I think that there might actually be a vaudevillian moment. That they build in some quiet to the beginning of the next scene, knowing that the laugh would be that big. We should check that to see. Absolutely. It's totally conscious. I forget what it is, but whatever they cut to next, the first there's a little scenic moment, yeah. Or yeah. not super important. I think it's also interesting as it's probably the longest Billy Crystal goes without talking. 
It's a very yes. humbling <laughs> moment for Harry. <laughs> yeah. We're going from Good there. Call. Right? Because I think he, uh, obviously, he at the start of the so movie, confident. he's the alpha. He's so confident. Yeah. And that's the first time she really knocks him down several pegs. And it's very right. satisfying. And then they're kind of more on equal footing. And it's also that thing of like, when someone makes a joke about them having sex, the yeah. weird level of intimacy the conversation then has after it, mm-hmm. because it's like, oh, I'm now thinking about you as a sexual person. You force that into my brain. And her having to perform an orgasm in front of him is like the most heightened version of that. And like orgasms aren't a thing that are even being discussed in movies, let alone like mainstream rom-coms. At this point in time in America, you know, right now it feels trite, but then of course, right? Like it, it, if if this is being discussed as a topic, it is so much more obliquely. It is like the contest in Seinfeld, and to have a scene where like it starts and you think, oh, are they not allowed to say the word? And then he finally goes like the orgasm. They don't, yeah, he had the orgasms, you know. Uh, well, that's a moment where I think you see something that sets this apart from the Woody Allen movie that at the time I would lamely have thought it was just a, a bad imitation of, right? And where you see that it was written by a woman is that it's total one-upmanship on her part, totally. right? Totally. I mean, what she does is is win that argument by kind of pulling the card of her womanhood and yeah. her experience as a woman. And so it's not only incredibly funny, but it's really brave of her to do that. You know, yes. I mean, it's it's really sort of like throwing away her her social capital to totally embarrass herself at Katz's because it's important for her to make that point, you know, and to yeah. and to and to make Billy Crystal laugh. So that's a moment where her character has so much more agency and humor than any female Woody Allen character yes. is ever allowed. Totally. And that's that's because of Nora Ephron. Like Reiner said, like, I never would have written that scene. I never would have had the courage to write that scene. I never would have even thought of it as a scene. I didn't even really understand that that was a thing. You know, like that's the thing you only get by having a movie with multiple perspectives in it rather than a movie right. that is solely based around the fetishes of one man who refuses to change, you know, in any way in relation to culture. But then the sweetness of having his mom be the one who delivers that line of I'll have what she's having. Right. So it's not dirty. It takes it back into this sort of family friendly realm. Right. And Reiner knew he was like, there has to be some button. There has to be some blow right. at the end of the scene. I don't know what it is. Billy was the one who finally came up with I'll have what she's having, which makes sense because it's such a fucking Billy Crystal joke. Is uh, it the best button on like any scene? I, yeah, I can't I, think I of think any other I think it's just the most successful. Right. Yeah. And so much because of the wind up and how much Meg Ryan nails the performance of the orgasm itself. But the fact that like he wants his mom to be the one who delivers it. They don't know what it is. Billy comes up with it very late in the game. And then Billy Crystal was like, well, I'm sitting there at Katz's and she's at the table. I can like feel the heat emanating off of her, her nerves, understanding how much the scene now relies on her ability to land this line or not. Like he was like, you could feel your mom shaking, hoping that she wasn't going to fuck the scene up because Rob Reiner was like, look, mom, I love you. But if you don't nail the scene, I'm going to have to cut. Yeah, you know, the scene's got to like." Was saying it to her on set in that way. The other thing they said was that Meg Ryan was understandably pretty sheepish about doing it, especially a scene where they have like so many extras on set, you know, and so many strangers uh, that she was doing a couple takes kind of timid. And then Rob Reiner was like, Meg, 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 stand up. Let me sit in the, the chair for a second. And Rob Reiner essentially gave her a line reading of 
the entire orgasm. <laughs> oh, I wish I could see I was going to say, I wish the footage existed. A, he was like, I want to show you how big you need to go, right? Right, right. You'll Don't be afraid to be real. You'll really make good. it your own. Throw you'll your head you'll draw from your own personal experience. But B, he now sort of broke the, the ceiling of embarrassment because now mm-hmm. all the extras have seen this fat sweaty yeah. bald Jew <laughs> do it you know I say with all with all love of so course. that like Meg Ryan is never going to be more embarrassing than that she's now suddenly in a safe space where she can't be embarrassed by doing it and I'm sure just like having off camera not rolling all the extras probably laughing at Rob Reiner trying to do this made her just feel like, okay, I'm safe now. Like, they're not going to giggle that much at me. They're not going to judge me, you know? It's another really smart piece of directing on his point. He also said this thing about, like, because this movie is so based in the music of it, he would try to give Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan line readings a lot. And also, obviously, Rob Reiner had a lot of experience as an actor. And he said, like, the best actors I ever worked with, the ones who were the most selfless, would take line readings because they knew I don't want you to actually just imitate what I said. I want you to identify some specific thing I'm getting at, usually based Mm -hmm. in rhythm, and you're going to have the confidence to not take that as a backhanded kind of thing and also, of course, make it your own. And he was like, Nicholson was like that in A Few Good Men. Like, Billy and Meg were like that on this, where he could say, like, you got to say the line, like, da-da-da-da-da-da. Like, it has to be the da-da. And then he was like, and then when you said it, it was totally different. You turned it into something different, but you were able to extrapolate the one specific thing I needed you to get, which I never would have been able to get at by describing it. Um, yes, I want to talk about, I'm trying to think of other things we need to talk about. The music, the, the Mark Shaman, Harry Connick Jr. music. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, man, Harry Connick Jr., that guy is uh, really an aphrodisiac. Just like hearing him sing, I was like, oh, baby, Harry. And it's just that this is the time for that sort of, I think we talk about it on a future episode, but that's sort of great American songbook type yeah. piano bar um, vibe. It's like cool again. It's like, that's this sort of like comes back in the 80s. Also, I love the way that the content of the Harry Connick Jr. songs, or sometimes it's actually Sinatra or Bing. There's some there's some real old school singers on the soundtrack as well. But the the content of the old standard will, will match up with what's happening in a kind of subtle way on screen. So, for yeah. example, when she's at the New Year's dance by herself at the end, it's that great song, Don't Get Around Much Anymore, right? Which is about mm-hmm. missing your ex. I missed the Saturday dance, heard they crowded the floor. Awful lonesome without you. Don't get around much anymore. Just the the lyrical content almost always has something to do with where Harry and Sally are at. There's some sort of mirroring. God, like every this is just one of those movies that is kind of perfect. Like everything about it just sort of perfectly works in relation to itself. I forgot we didn't talk about how there's two New Year's parties in this. Yeah. Well, there's the seasonal structure after the. Two five-year jumps are over and we're right. in the present day. It's basically a Christmas movie, right? A, a sort of end-of-the-year Christmas yeah. to New Year's movie because there's this structural, seasonal thing going on where you see them at the New Year's dance making the promise that if they don't have a date, they'll go to the next New Year's dance. And I believe there's just supposed to have been one year that elapses, right, yeah. between yeah. those two. I and during so. that year is when they have sex, regret it. Right. Jess, right. And, Jess and, and Bruno get... Sorry, what's his name? Jess and... Jess and, uh, oh boy, uh, Marie. Yeah. Right. But like them buying the Christmas tree together. 
Yeah. And it feels so New York specific of just her struggling Dragging with the tree, him. being defeated when she gets into her apartment. He's like leaving the message. I yeah, also, everything's mirrored, right? The stuff yes. you saw them do together, she has to do alone. But that's that's like, I mean, any good rom-com has some degree of mirroring, but also kind of needs to end on a callback, right? Like every good rom-com ends with some sort of callback to show how the characters have grown or changed or really internalized something. So you have to like recall something that made an impact earlier in the film. And I think about a movie that I think is perfectly charming. I know David, you like even more than me. Uh, What, what did it end up even being called? The the one with uh, Zoe Kazan and Daniel Radcliffe, where they what, changed the title. In America, it's called What If. A fucking uh, awful Elsewhere, title. it's called The F Word. Right. Um, great movie. But, but Recently rewatched it, still good. I, I enjoy it. You like it a lot more than I do. But it is a movie where they do that thing with the fried gold sandwich, where that's supposed to be like yeah. the callback that he, he brings the sandwich or she brings the sandwich or whatever. But it's one of those things where when they set up the sandwich in the movie, you're like, I get it. You know this it's going to come thing. back. Right. Yeah, you sure. identify right. it as like, that's the mm-hmm. thing that's going to come back. And the, the this movie has the confidence to make the callbacks very small and subtle. I mean, the callback is the year between these two parties, you know, mm-hmm. it's the environment. It's the passage of time. It's that feeling that happens on New Year's Eve. And the the kiss they share on the first New Year's is very kind of like, oh, we're outside and we're making eye contact. Like, okay, right. we're just going for it. We're friends. And then, yeah, how much changes in that year? So it's so organic and earned, but it's also just that, like, New Year's Eve is the time where you go, like, oh, geez, where was I a year ago and two years ago and three years ago? Where you really start to chart, like, the passage of time and what's mattered to you and what hasn't. And they also just do that super elegant montage of... Uh, all the 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 quick shots when he's of their in Washington Square Park. Yeah, which I grew up right by Washington Square Park. A big downtown running Griffey theme Nooms. throughout downtown Griffey Nooms. A big running theme of this Nora Ephron miniseries is uh, seeing New York depicted on film and me crying because I no longer can go to the locations of the city I still live in. I think the saddest pandemic flashback moment for me was when the three friends, Lisa Jane Persky, Carrie yep. Fisher, Meg Ryan, are having drinks at the, I guess it's the the lake on Central Park. Yeah. Right? Mm. I don't even know if that cafe still exists, but there's yeah, just this I great wonder, New York yeah. moment of just hanging yeah. out with your friends, talking about, you know, your messed up relationships and drinking wine. And it was just nostalgia for Carrie Fisher, you yeah. know, but also nostalgia for just New York and socializing. It's hard to not be not, not be nostalgic for socializing right now. <laughs> I know. The, uh, the, the arch in Washington Square Park was like what I saw outside my bedroom window. Humble and brag. is like, humble brag. But it is one of those things that like is such a point of nostalgia and retrospection for me because I've seen it at like every different point in my life. Even though I don't live near there anymore, whenever I go by there, I have that same flood of emotions. And the fact that in this movie, that is the visual trigger for him. And it's once again, a very subtle callback. It's just like they make a point of really framing it clearly when he gets out of the car after the drive. But it doesn't feel like they're underlining it. It feels like, well, it's a beautiful thing. You just got to frame it. But it it means that at the end of the film, when he walks by it again and the framing is replicated, suddenly you have that New Year's Eve feeling of, oh, think about how far we've come in the last 90 minutes. Also, that montage, so, that montage so feels like having 
memories of your relationship. Like it just feels mm-hmm. so real to me. It, it feels really, like it how memories play in me. your mind. Yeah, it made me cry song. really hard. That I, moment. I totally cried. Yeah, I had I forgotten it. he saw the couple too. He sees them kissing outside and yeah. then it cuts to his face and you know just in that moment he's like, I wish I was with Sally right now. Right. Yeah. And that calls right. back to what she said when she tells him about her breakup with Joe. Remember where she talks about taking the cab ride with the little girl and they yeah. say, I spy a family and she starts to cry. What a good goddamn movie. Is there anything else we need to talk <sighs> about? I'm trying I, to think. I, don't think so. I think we've done a good job. Um, I just wanted to say the wedding dress is the worst. <laughs> it's not great. You mean Carrie's dress? Yeah. I think it's a fun 80s dress. It's like princess like sleeves and just this weird pattern on the front. It, it is super 80s. I, I will say that what struck me in that scene, and it doesn't go with what I was generally gushing about with the costume design, is that it doesn't seem like... The, I don't think that Jess and Marie would have that wedding. They seem too offbeat and too New York. They do. It you is know, the, and too it is, Jewish. Yeah. I just don't think that they would have such a princessy wedding with the dad giving her away. And maybe that's just a Hollywood thing, that that's just how you did weddings in movies then. I think it's a little bit of a Hollywood thing of like, we need to communicate this as quickly as possible. But I think Reiner also is even more of like a sentimental softy than Nora Ephron. Totally. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in that scene, what stands out to me is just when she's describing Harry's date as thin, pretty, big tits, your perfect nightmare. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a perfect line. That's a great line. And and the bit of business where Sally gets the hors d'oeuvre that's a shrimp with a pea pod wrapped around it, also very 80s. <laughs> yeah. And she just uses it fantastically in that scene. She gestures with it. She twiddles with it. She never eats it. And then she gets so mad that she just throws it on the ground <laughs> and stomps away. I was I was talking with uh, my sister, Romley, who will never be a, a guest on the show again. Uh, about Nora Ephron being a a sort of underrated food filmmaker. Um, Julia Julia. and directed. Well, right. So her final film is the one that is explicitly about food. But so many of her movies, so many of the most iconic moments happen in restaurants, have food items around them. And the thing I think she's particularly well tapped into is the relationship between food as a form of socialization, you know? What it means when you make a meal for someone, when you share a meal with someone, what it means to go out to a restaurant, the difference between a high-class restaurant and places like Katz's and doing it in a group versus doing it on a date and all these things. It's like food is always really important in her movies, but it's never food porn, despite her showcasing a lot of great food, even like the carbonara in bed and heartburn. Like she's just very attuned and she was a great appreciator of food. She cooked a lot in her real life. but She's very attuned to the role that food has in our lives and in forming relationships, I think. Well, and Billy Crystal's observations about the Malamar being the great cookie, which we hear in voiceover. I also love how that voiceover, I usually can't stand the use of voiceover in movies. There's rare exceptions. It's hard to do well. And I especially don't like when voiceover is randomly introduced late in a movie when it hasn't been established. And yet, in this movie, it works perfectly. Absolutely. It it defies all logic. It's another one of those things where it's just like, I don't know why that works. 
it's a bizarre thing to introduce so late in a movie that's very formally sort of concise. Like, yeah. you know, it has not been doing stuff like that. Is it, It's just after they sleep together and then yeah. back to the food thing, they, they're like, oh, we'll get dinner tonight. And then that's when they both kind of like, oh, it was a mistake. Oh, the awkward salad crunching. The sad, awkward salad crunching And him scene. being like, you know, it's great that we don't have to say anything to each other. That's so good. Another good button, right? Because then the yeah. scene just awkwardly ends. And not to like refer everything back to the one guy I usually try to avoid referring to, but you compare that one usage of voiceover for his internal monologue to like Manhattan, which is well, yeah. so overrun with that, you know? Right. He, Woody Allen really leans on voiceover too much. Right. Often. And the final example of it, which is like, you know, when he's sort of like narrating, it starts, I guess, as a therapy session, but then cuts to the montage, very similar to this movie, where he's thinking about all the different moments with Mariel Hemingway. And you're like, he's literally using the romantic jazz music and the internal monologue to normalize his relationship with a high school student, you know, in a movie that is like laying way too much track of too much voiceover of him fetishizing everything he likes. And then this movie just drops it in one scene with a similar montage and I would argue executes both better. Yeah. Uh, one last food thing is they're doing Pictionary or something. There's that oh, scene. So good. Oh, yeah. Which is Baby another talk. just perfect, like, sketch Baby kind talk. of scene. Yeah. But uh, Carrie Fisher uh, makes coffee with, Z- like, a Zabar's, like, coffee bag. Yeah. And I just, like, immediately just, like, got so nostalgic and, like, wanted to go there. But I ended up ordering stuff from them online for Mother's Day. Okay, this is what so I want to say. If I can, If I can get a little political here for a second. Oh, boy. I'm joking. The American delicatessen has already become a little bit of an endangered species. And watching this movie, which is so New York and so Jewish in so many ways, and has this famous Katz's Deli scene, I ordered delivery from a local delicatessen near me. A lot of them have closed down nationwide, but particularly in New York in the last five or six years. There's a documentary that's not particularly good, but very entertaining called Deli Man from earlier this decade. I just want to say, during the pandemic, during this time when a lot of rela- uh, restaurants are in danger, if you have a local deli that you can order from, maybe maybe throw them a little bit of business. I know Russ and Daughters is shipping boxes. because That's I've the seen other thing I was going to say. My yeah. mom got me a box from them for my birthday. It was very nice. A lot of oh, these lovely. delis, I think Katz's does this too, Sarge's, Russ and Daughters, you can order stuff shipped to you anywhere uh, nationwide. So if you are a fan of delicatessen and you want to keep them alive in this country, because we're talking about one of the great delicatessen movies of all time, think about doing a little online search. Get some pastrami. Come on now. Get some smoked fish, baby. If you want to have what she's having, consider sending a salami to your boy in the army. Um, (laughs) Wait, what is she actually having, actually? She's not having a pastrami sandwich. She seems to be stacking turkey onto her bread. I'm going to Google this right now while we do the box office game. Something with sauce on the side. Yeah, what on the side was is big with her. Sally having? It looks like she was having maybe a deli mustard on uh, sort of a white meat. I also wanted to confirm it's the sharper image on 57th between 5th and 6th. I knew it. Uh, that, that was my favorite one. The Soho one was bigger, but something about that one felt fancier because it was near like, All right. you know, this Fifth film, Avenue, Central Park, everything. Okay. This film platformed in the summer, which you would never do now. Wow. Uh, like it opened its first weekend. It opened on like less than a thousand screens. 
to like one million dollars, and it yet it makes ninety two million dollars. You know, it was, a, it was a huge hit. It, sure. it, it like multiplied really well. I mean, big word of mouth hit. I'm sorry, what was the final total? Ninety two. Wow. Um. So, but it, so yeah. So its first weekend is limited. Um. But it opened in the summer, July fourteenth, which again is kind of funny. You'd think this would open in the fall, just mm-hmm. because that's its sort of vibe. It's an autumnal movie. It is. Um, but a lot of these Efron movies open in the summer, as we've been finding out. Like, she, they, you know, that's back comedies would play in the summer with these. I, I'm still searching for an answer. He's obviously eating a pastrami. All it mentions is that she's eating coleslaw. Because the main thing you see her eating is forkfuls of coleslaw. I, I'm still trying to figure out what sandwich she was having. Well, oh. after the orgasm ends and she looks at him with that smug expression, she has this very triumphant bite of coleslaw. That's another example of Meg Ryan's just incredible use of, of props and business. It is turkey. It's turkey with deli mustard. I, one final moment of very Rob Reiner timing I want to say before we go back to the box office because I just remembered this. The okay. scene where Bruno Kirby and Billy Crystal are in the batting cages... Yeah, He realized for framing, because he wanted to get it only from two angles where you can do reverse on the two sides of their separate cages, he asked Billy Crystal to bat left-handed so that it would work from both sides. So Billy Crystal is batting with his non-dominant side, which he learned how to do after 700 Sundays. I mean, the guy put in the work, (laughs) studying the old great American pastime. Um, But also, rather than it being a pitching machine... He had like grips on set pitching the balls because Rob Reiner wanted the baseballs timed very specifically and comedically. So there's the moment. What is it that Billy Crystal says? He makes some reference to something he did to a woman in bed. She meowed. He made her meow. He made her meow. And then Bruno Kirby is like mind blown, drops his bat, turns around, looks to Billy Crystal is like, she meowed that you can do that. That happened. And then three balls fly past Bruno Kirby quickly while he's not paying attention. Also, the button to that scene is perfect where he's perfect. like, I'm like something to the effect of I'm mature now. And then he yells at a kid. Yes, it's perfect. Um, also, cages are cool. I love a cage. Well, of course you do. Okay. Box office. The movie comes out in the middle of the summer. What does yeah. it open at again, David? A million dollars. It's opening limited. I oh, mean, okay. semi-limited. Open not 700 screens. Wow. I mean, um, the days when you could open to a million yeah. and make it to 92. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm, yeah, that's what's crazy. In the middle but number of Number one at the box office. Big action sequel. $17 million in its second week. Lethal in Weapon 50. 2? That's right. I always guess one of the Lethal Weapons when you say action sequel. I mean, there's actually, yeah, that's a fair point. Yeah. Uh, there's not a lot of action sequels. <laughs> it feels like a, right. Yeah, it's a safe guess. It's a good starting guess. <laughs> Uh, number two so, is the wait, biggest. David, are you telling me that this weekend at the box office, the magic was back? The magic was back. And then, of course, released the weapon three. It was back again because they couldn't <laughs> think of a better tagline. Yep. Uh, I have broken down the absolutely demented lethal weapon three poster on this podcast before. I can't remember when or where. Riggs and Murtaugh were the Siegfried and Roy of yes. 80s cinema. They were the ultimate magicians <laughs> and the magicians. magic was back. It kept coming back. Uh, all right. Number two of the box office is the biggest movie of the year. It's 1989. It's the film called Bitman. Batman. Bartman. Uh, yes, Bartman. Yeah. So that would be uh, the Michael Keaton Batman? That's yeah. the Michael Keaton, mm-hmm. Tim Burton Batman. Did you right. see that in theaters, Dana? If, we, if we're talking about sort of snobby. I'm sure young Dana. I must have. I know I saw Sex Lies and Videotape. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I think I think I probably would have seen Batman. I'm the not sure. 89 classic. Great year. 1989. That's, that's another example of just like, Dana, can you imagine how quickly 
critics would run to bow at the altar of a modern superhero movie with the aesthetics of the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Like if a superhero movie looked like that and had that tone today, people would be like, where did this come from? Right. And like rightfully so, understandably so. In At the time, people were like, sheesh. I know. And people were like, "Uh, here's another movie that's going to ruin Hollywood, which it kind of did. Like it was another Jaws Star Wars inflection point where everyone took the wrong lessons away from it. And it killed many genres and I mean, many eight, budgets, sizes in the well, process. Well, and 89, it's the birth of the superhero thing. And, yeah. it, and it's the birth of a, like, American indie movie. Sex, Lies, and Videotape, Mystery Train is this yeah. year. Like, you know, it's a lot of drugstore cowboy. But that, and just also, do the right thing, opening totally, the same do the summer. right thing, 100%. But yep. that's a huge shift, is, like, the fact that you have Sex, Lies, and Videotapes and uh, Mystery Train and those other movies starting to make an impact made independently means that within a couple of years, Universal would never make Do the Right Thing again. Like that movie does not get made in a studio system. It gets made from independent financing and goes to a film festival. Um, All right. Number three at the box office. It's a kid's comedy. I definitely saw it. Not in theaters. I think I would have been too young. Hmm. Uh, Very high concept. Very high concept. Star driven or is the star the concept? Has a star. Has a serious, I would say, a comedy star of the era, but not star driven. Not animated, but very visual effects heavy. Is it a Robin Williams movie? No. Is it Who Killed Roger Rabbit? No. These are all good guesses. That's 87, right? Oh, okay. I'm sure. I don't we'll know. be covering soon. Um, it was like, a, it's, a, it's a Disney movie. It was a surprise success. I don't think it was expected to be this huge, but it was huge. It's not Splash, but it's one of those. It's one of no, those Disney out of nowhere. Me saying huge is kind of a giveaway. Oh, it's... Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. <laughs> yeah. Great movie. Was, um, was their highest grossing live action film for a long time. It made like $200 million. It was a huge hit. And same here's the thing. It's got big bugs. Like everything's big in it. Yeah. Big grass. It's crazy. Do you guys know that movie, that movie was written by and developed to be directed by Stuart Gordon, the director of Reanimator yeah. and Castle Freak. And uh, also the guy who was the first person to ever stage a mammoth play in Chicago came out of the Chicago theater. Um, and that was supposed to be his big studio breakthrough. And the reason he didn't direct the movie. Do you know this? Uh, I don't know. He quit sure. on the grounds that they would not let him give the film his original intended title. Oh, I do know this, which I believe was What could have been better? Honey, I shrunk the kids. Teeny weenies. (laughs) Dana, he decided to die on the hill of teeny weenies. That movie would not have been a hit if it was not called Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, the title is half the gross. It's three quarters of the gross. That's the entire success of that movie. The movie is surprisingly good, but the success is that the poster had that title and you went I get it I understand well and I also have to say then it opens the way to the sequel Honey We Shrunk Ourselves which has a whole new it opens up a whole new well and in between there are three movies you also have Honey We Blew Up the Kid Honey, I blew up the kid, and then honey, yeah. we shrunk ourselves. I it's mean, perfect. Honey, I blank is so evocative. <laughs> I just love that he was like, I will be proven correct. History is written by the Renners. Watch this movie fail when it is titled Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. And And I will be able to sit back and tell myself it should have been called Teeny Weenies. Uh, All right. 
Griffin, number four at the box office is another action sequel, much longer running franchise. A much longer it's running franchise. It's how- new at the box office this week. It's a flop. This movie is sort of a famous flop. Wow. So is this the end of the franchise? or is No, this- but it's the end of a, a section of the franchise. Interesting. Is there a recasting after this point? There's a recasting after this, yeah. So is this the last Roger Moore? No. Or is it is it the last Timothy Dalton? Correct, correct. So it's for your eyes only? No, no the Living Daylights? More, no, that's the first Dalton. Uh, uh, what, what's License what? to, kill. to Kill. Okay. Uh the the weirdly dark Bond movie that invo- includes an exploding head. Wow. I've never and seen a lot either. of uh, it's very Miami Vice-y because Miami Vice was cool. So it has like um, Latin drug lords. It has Benicio Del Toro. Like it's wow. it's weird and the tone is off. Nobody, it, some people appreciate it, but it was not popular. Um, I've, ne- I've never seen uh, either. Um, yeah, we should do some Bond things. I, I'm a, I mean, it's interesting because I mean, she comes up in the Sleepless in Seattle episode, obviously. But the weird kind of career pocket that Carrie Lowell Carrie had. Carrie Lowell is the Bond girl in that Where movie. she was in so many culturally important things without ever really breaking out as a star. She was in Law & Order. That's what I'm saying. Like, early yeah. seasons Law & Order, she was a Bond girl, but at the wrong point. You know? she's sure. She has more screen time with Tom Hanks in Sleepless in Seattle than Meg Ryan does. Yet Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks become the pair. You know? I just well, I sure. find I, I mean, no. she's dead and sleepless in Seattle. It all makes sense. I'm just saying it's interesting how she was like there at so many yeah, different yeah, formative yeah. moments. Yeah. Um, uh, number five, let's just wrap this up because we've been talking for, for a while, um, is a movie that is in its uh, 1,902nd week in the box office. Literally? That is what the numbers is putting it at. I'm sure this is a re-release of a, a children's classic. Is it a, it's, so it's a Disney re-release? It's a Disney re-release. Fuck. So this is I mean, like and that's when I was a kid. This is how I saw a lot of those Disney movies, like the Jungle Book or whatever. You know, they would put them back out. Well, that was the theaters. first movie I ever saw was the Jungle Book re-release. I saw it the quad, but that was a year or two after this. So I know it's not the Jungle Book. It's not the Jungle Book. And they tend to cycle them. It's was a fifties. It it's not Dumbo. Is it it's Pinocchio? It's a 50s Disney. No, that's also funny. Is it 101 Dalmatians? No, although that's a great movie. See, I'm trying to think because 89 is the year I'm born humble brag so i'm trying to think of which ones i saw the re-releases within my childhood because that's the process of elimination of what it couldn't be uh so it's not cinderella no is it a princess no it's not bambi no great movie all 40s not dumbo not bambi fantasia no that's 40s as well 50s guys disney in the 50s 50s is is it the cats when they eat the pasta The Aristocats? Movie? That's, I believe, the 60s. Oh, you're 70s. thinking of Lady and the Tramp. Lady and the Tramp, well, but it wasn't oh, that. Oh, the cats, the, the, the dogs eating the pasta. Yeah. No, it's oh. not There's racist Lady cats in both of those movies. <laughs> That's true. Oh, God. And, Peter, in Lady and the Tramp, there were more severe racist yes. cats. Okay, wait. Rescuers is 70s. It's you not guys are missing movie. an obvious one, and I understand why. This movie is I weirdly forgotten sometimes, even though it's hugely culturally important. Oh, is it? Uh, uh, uh. The wizard? Is it the no, king? No, no, not Sword in the Stone. Yeah, is okay. it? Is the title the character's name? Yes. It's a big movie, guys. Big one. I'm this running. Is, Our I'm listeners running are like screaming right now. 
I'm running through in my head working at the Disney store and looking at the wall of plush. <laughs> and I'm trying to remember which plush I have but not. But this is, Disney doesn't own this. This is public domain. Anyone can make a movie of this. It's and not, many have. It's not Winnie the Pooh. No. But it's public domain. But there is a, There's iconic... so many movie versions of this. Peter There's Pan? There's so many. Peter Pan. Oh. It's Peter Pan. I got it. Damn it. That was a big one to miss. Which is, it, 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 I feel like even though it's universally yeah. culturally, you know, like everyone remembers like eight things from Peter Pan. Yes. It, it does sort of get forgotten in the Disney canon because it lacks a princess and because it's been done in so many versions. But but still, I think so many of the visual tropes we associate with Peter Pan now come from yeah, that Yeah, and movie. When You Wish Upon a Star is like one of the most important Disney songs. It's in the damn logo. And, you know, and like, Tinkerbell is like one of the five most important yeah. Disney characters. She's in every Disney movie. Right. But also she just... over the castle. Yeah, but as someone who was given all the internal memos that are very important sent to part-time cast members at the Disney store... It was like, this is one of the pillars of our company. Right. You know, it was like, we wow. sell poo to like a certain age. We sell like Tinkerbell to like this certain thing. Huge. I think she's yeah. the highest selling yeah. female character at Disney merchandise. Um, yeah. So Peter Pan. Wow. Uh, that's that's it. That's the box office. Um, you got a lot of sequels as well. You got uh, Last Crusade. You got Ghostbusters 2. Yeah. Do the right thing is in the top ten, um, along with Weekend at Bernie's. So two pillars of nineteen eighty nine. Weekend at Bernie's is such a good movie. <laughs> this is like the first really modern box office summer, where it's sure. like Ghostbusters sure. two, Lethal Weapon right. two, big, Batman, big tentpole indie. type movies, right? Yeah. Indie indie three, because like I think Batman becomes the biggest opening weekend of all time and then Ghostbusters immediately dethrones it or vice versa. Something like that. The record is broken two consecutive weekends in a row. All right. We got to wrap it up. 89 feels to me like a very pivotal movie year. If you guys ever focus on a year, you should do an 89 series. It's an underratedly important because of the amount of indie movies that are breaking out. Like, you know, that sort of mix of blockbusters and 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 the amount of blockbusters and franchises. And, and there's another huge industry redefining release of 1989. Disney, the little mermaid. Downtown Griffey Nooms. Oh, sure. And downtown graffiti. <laughs> and also you have like, that's Ch- when Henry- Changes the industry forever. That's when Branna sort of revives the Shakespeare movie with Henry yes. V. Like, you know, that's when Al Pacino comes back with Sea of Love. Like Al Pacino had been gone. Like that's when Tom Cruise becomes a serious actor with Born. And then all after all of that, uh, Hollywood is like, oh God, this is a lot. Let's just pick Driving Miss Daisy as best picture. Like, let's not wade into this. There's an argument for the nine year often being the most important within a given decade. And also that being the year where the Academy kind of fucks it up. Like you think about like 99 being so historic and it goes to American Beauty I feel like 2019 was a big year and it goes to Green Book. Or that, no, I'm sorry. That was, uh, this was a good year, actually. This was a parasite. No, but yeah, 2018 Green Book. I mean, obviously, right. Uh, the Bonnie and Clyde year where they, they don't have the guts, so they go for In the Heat of the Night. Right, that was 69, right? 68, or I can't remember. Something like that. I, but I, Parasite still goes to your theory that the, the nine year is a pivotal year. Nine Maybe years Maybe you guys should do a series where you go through some decades and grab grab all the nine years. Well, yeah, you know, well. We, we every year do a Blankies episode where we give out our awards for the best in film of the year. And uh, who knows how possible that is next year, depending on what oh, movies do or something. It's going to be interesting Blankies. So there's a chance we might have to do like a, a 1999, what we would have given the awards episode or something like that. Um, 
But yeah, wow, 89's an interesting year. Yeah. Dana, thank yeah. you so much for being oh, on hey, the show. Re- really quick. Yeah. Just because, like, Dana, I know you you know a lot about silent film. <laughs> yeah, trying to. I got this idea. Yeah. Maybe, I, I don't know, I don't want to, like, chalk it up to, like, the next evolution of cinema. Oh, boy. How do you feel about loud movies? <laughs> loud movies? Everything's loud, screaming, loud sound effects. The music's too loud. I mean, the Safdie brothers did one last year, right? That's loud cinema. Yeah, it was Ben's favorite movie of the year. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that movie is someone constantly in your ear going like, "Ah, more of that, please. My whole reaction to that movie is like, congratulations, I'm agitated for the rest of the day. Right. Right. You accomplished that. And Ben was like bopping along with it. Hell yeah. Ben Ben isn't satisfied with a talkie. He wants a screamy. (laughs) Instead of it's the train, it should be the crane. (laughs) The crane coming into the station. Yeah. Let's bring this train to the the screen and kills everyone in the theater, right? Arrival of the crane at LaCroix station. Uh, Dana, thank you so much for being on the show. You're one of the best. Oh, it's such a pleasure. I love the show. I love the freewheelingness of it. I love that there's not the sense as on the other podcasts I do at Slate that my stupid stuff is going to be cut out. (laughs) My stupid stuff is just going to be loved. We're loosey goosey here, baby. Um, yes, we are. But you're one of the best. People should always read whatever you're posting on Slate and uh, listen to both of your podcasts, Slate Plus. It's a time to support the things you care about. If you have yep. any disposable you have income, memes, and yes. I understand many do not at this point in time, this is a really good time to put your money towards uh, maintaining the survival of the things you love, whether they're the outlets you love in terms of writing or the delicatessens you love in terms of deli meat. And if I could just point out, the Slate Plus subscription for the first year is really friggin' cheap compared hey. to most of the things out there. It's a bit less than a dime a day. And I'm telling you, a lot l- of content. And this guy Trump, he's telling me the economy is going to come back better than ever next year. So you just got to do one Phew. year at the low rate, and then next year you'll be a billionaire. Next year everyone's <laughs> going to be a billionaire. He promises it. That that a hundred percent is going to be his campaign platform for re-election, right? Like, hey, just look, you wait. I, I know the economy collapsed, but I swear to God, I literally promise everyone's going to be a billionaire next year. <laughs> uh, fuck the world. Everything's bad. Oh, right, come on. Thank you for being on the show. When Harry Met Sally is good. Flashback is good. Slate Culture Gab Fest is good. Uh, and Nora Ephron's good. And I'm excited to do this miniseries. We've recorded a good chunk of them now. And boy, yeah. are these movies a good solve for the time we're living in. Nice bomb. Great a for rewatching. Very, very nice bomb. Uh, so tune in next week. For This Is My Life. That's right. Our first Special guest, Michelle Collins. The great Michelle Collins. Great stand-up. Yep. Uh, talking about a movie that most people uh, have not seen that uh, quietly fucks so goddamn hard. <laughs> yeah, oh, this is movie. the Julie Kavner as it's a comedian? So good. Oh, I love yeah. it. Oh, I yeah. love it. Now I wish I were doing that one. Okay, I'll listen. It's so good. <laughs> Everyone Dude. tune in. It's a great episode. Michelle's a great guest. Uh, I think we got good guests for this whole miniseries. I think it's going to be a really oh, fun yeah. one. Oh, yeah. Um, so please continue listening and thank you. And please remember to rate, review, subscribe. Go to red.blankcheck.com for some real nerdy shit. Go to patreon.com backslash blankcheck for special features where I think we're finally, we're filling up, finishing up Toy Story now. Starting. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We're in the I middle of that. We're almost Might be yeah. transitioning into some Mission Impossible. Into some impossible missions. Um, and. Thanks to Andrew Gudo. 
for our social media and also for co-producing this show. Rachel Jacobs for her editing help and Liam Montgomery for a theme song. Joe Bone and Pat Reynolds for our artwork. And, and thank you all for being you in a time like this. There's nobody like you. I don't know what I'm saying. And all as, right. And, <laughs> Come and, on. And as always. <laughs> and as always. Billy Crystal can get it as long as he has a beard. <laughs> Griffin, are you just going to reenact the fake orgasm scene? No, Is that what you're going to do? do? <laughs> Is that how you're yeah. going to start us off? It feels too dangerous. It okay. feels too okay. risky. Sure.